This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Backward to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 172 for April MMXIX. Backward to Oracle is brought to you by... Hi, everybody. My name's Hub, and I host a show called Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. Every week, we read either a Defenders comic book from the 70s or a New Teen Titans comic from the 80s. I give a synopsis of that comic that I have handcrafted to amuse and inform. And then my good-for-many-things brother Cory comes over and we talk about what we found interesting about the comic we just read. It's a lot of fun and we hope you'll join us for it. Anything you'd like to add, Cory? I like cocaine from an animal's butthole. Mm. It is. So good. It is. Paradise. Well, Corey, I don't really think that's appropriate. We're trying to do a promotion for our podcast here. Shut up. Okay, fair enough. Any final thoughts? Of course. Well, let's hear them. 
I have eaten all the beaver butt. <laughs> you have eaten none. And beaver's butt is pretty good. There you have it. Tighten up the defense. That's T-I-T-A-N. You can find it wherever podcasts are found. It's probably worth mentioning. I'm the one who does the editing. Catch the wave of the future and hang 10 on it with us. Cowabunga. Batgirl the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out Mile High Comics. Com. Well, he is my stand-in, I suppose, my regular, my only regular, co- well, no, I shouldn't say that. The original regular was Donovan Morgan Grant, and this guy's been coming on every time we do JLA, and of course, we're going to do a JLA series, so welcome back to the show, Tom Panarese. Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm actually finishing up right before you called. I was trying to, I was wondering, oh, could I finish it? Could I finish it? Mockingjay. I had be- <laughs> betwixt all of the long novels that I've been reading, I've been forcing you to read. I've been taking breaks by reading Hunger Games again, cause, just because I, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, man, I forgot how much I enjoy those. So after, I guess we read that, and then it was Les Mis, and then... I guess I read Catching Fire, and then I read Vanity Fair, and then I was like, I really do need a break now. I'm going to read Mockingjay, so I'm so close to the end. But yeah, just as fun as I remember it. All right. Yeah, I haven't read that in, God, I I think I read that before the first movie came out. So that's how long I, that's how long ago I read Mockingjay, all three of them. Well, excepting uh, The Hunger Games the first one because we just covered that <laughs> sure. required reading, but yep. but yeah, the other two I haven't read in, in a long time. So the big thing, of course, going on right now is March Madness, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering how busted your bracket might be. Is it busted? Not entirely, but it's pretty beat up. Okay, I think I still have. I think. Um, I don't have my brackets in front of me. In fact, I don't know where they are. I think they're. I think I left them in my classroom, <laughs> or they're they're upstairs in the living room. But um, yeah, I had. I think I'm 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 at about like fifty or sixty percent total. I don't know. I, I I never really pay much attention. Like I don't take too long to fill these things out. But yeah, I'm I'm toward the bottom in the relatively geeky bracket. Yeah. And as of Monday morning, I was. Uh, which was Monday morning um, of the first weekend after the first weekend. So before the six, Sweet 16 started, I was like in the middle of the pack in the uh, faculty one at work. Oh, okay. So both of my champions in each one or my champions in each one are still around. I have to – so I found out about this relatively geeky bracket this year. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe I had heard about it in previous years, but only after the fact. I was never invited to participate in this. I felt like it was a man's club. I felt very offended each time, and I let Professor Allen know that I was offended. <laughs> so this year – of course, you can't let people just sit in their you know offensiveness. You have to let them know that you're being offensive. So I basically let them have it. Did you use and the word like, betrayal? 
I probably did. I probably said betrayal. Why wasn't I invited? And so he prattles on about, you know, it's posted, whatever, whatever. But it's not like I scroll through Facebook looking for every update that Professor Allen has to offer. So I, you know, I usually, I make a bracket every year on ESPN just to watch it happen. Mm -hmm. This year I was actually pretty conservative. There's one year that I did really well is the year that Butler beat Duke. And I actually, Mm -hmm. that was, I gosh, I don't know, and that was like 2012 or something. And that was one of those upsets that no one, no one saw coming and I put it. And so like my bracket really did well that year. This one (laughs) I stayed pretty conservative, but I've been missing some things. I did have UVA. UVA is not going to the end, but I did decide to bring them, I think maybe to the elite eight. And that's about as, as far as they're going to go. Cause just, I feel like they perform well, but at the end, they just seem to choke. And I mean, last year they really did choke by being oh, a number God. one seed and getting destroyed by a, what a number uh, 12 seed or whatever. 16. <laughs> UMBC was a 16 oh, seed. That man. was, it, it broke my heart. It was great. Well, it probably broke all their hearts too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have UVA going all the way in one of my brackets. Just because I was like, <laughs> one of my degrees is from there. I have to. Sure, why not? And then the other bracket, I was a bit more conservative. What I found funny was that instead of duplicating my bracket, I actually had different picks in each bracket. So I called some of the upsets in one bracket, but not in the other. Oh, okay. <laughs> so so I had UC Irvine, for instance, winning that first round game in one bracket, but not in the other. So that's where I'm, that's why I'm kind of still alive. Although Kansas let me down. So, oh yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, I have Michigan state winning it all. I don't know. We'll see. I guess I do too. Okay. Oh, so I do too. Cause I have them, I have them beating Duke. Ah, yep. Yep. Um, because I have Duke beating, um, well, I didn't expect Virginia tech to win. I certainly did not call Liberty. So I had them beating whoever I had going. Uh, I had Duke winning in the Sweet 16 and then losing to uh, – eventually losing to Michigan State. Gotcha. I guess we'll so, see. Mm-hmm. This is not a basketball podcast. It's not, no. But it is – I mean it's March Madness and mm-hmm. I think you're the only podcasting <laughs> friend that I talk to that likes sports because Josh is in the sports. Don's not in the sports. So I figured why not? This is the perfect time. To oh, talk about you. it, and since yeah. we're in this particular, uh, we're in the bracket together. I told uh, yes. Alan that as long as I beat Tom, that it'll be okay. I think I'm two well, points behind you. I don't know if it's I possible. Lo- I love the fact that, like, he was like, you know, the loser's going to get a copy of Turok Dinosaur Hunter number one, and I, I think my reply was, um, you have my copy because I took. I went to uh, this is a few years ago, Baltimore. I had so um, this goes back to the uh, the quarter bin podcast episode fifty. I think it was episode fifty. Oh right, yeah, I remember. Alec had it had he had a bunch of us on to talk about Turok dinosaur number one, Hunter number one, and he was like, you know, I can send you scans. I'm like, no, I I'm I told them no. I, I'm sure that my LCS has one, and they had it in the cheap bins. They had like five. So I picked one up, and then a few years ago, um, Bart Sears, I think, I think it was, either, I think it was Bart Sears, was at um, the Baltimore Comic Con, and um, I had him sign it, and I sent it to Professor Allen. So I also sent him a, a like a Warlord or a Green Arrow book signed by Mike Grell. So that- <laughs> <laughs> it was a good and a bad. Yeah, yeah. What if if you won the bracket and he sent you back the one that you sent him? How would you feel? 
somehow that would be an appropriate honor. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Only because it's Alan, you know. Yeah, I guess so. Man. Okay, well, yeah, enough about sports, I guess. I mean, there are some people that in the Venn diagram of sports and nerd culture, we're in the center. But I know Mm -hmm. that maybe we're more on, on one or the other here. But here we're going to talk about some more JLA, and yep. it's it happens to be like every other Tom will be on, but Tom's tenure is coming to an end soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do have a fun idea because I noticed that what Tower of Babel is coming up is that what it's called? Yes, isn't that yeah? It's called Justice League Doom, I think, in uh, direct to video. So I have a fun plan. Maybe I'll throw it out to you after after we're done recording. Okay. Uh, when we do that. But yeah, so we've got some JLA here. Particularly, we're going to focus on World War Three. Mm-hmm. We do have some other issues just because we wrapped up. What was our previous storyline? Um, Crisis Times Five. Yes. It seems like we're doing all these big stories. So after Crisis Times 5, there were a couple issues that I'm just going to give a nice little synopsis. Thank you to DC Wikidia or whatever, Wikipedia, I think it's Wikidia or something like that. And uh, just just go through it, and then we're going to focus on 34, skip over 35, which is funny because 35 is a Day of Judgment tie-in, and that Mm -hmm. was the whole thing. Oh, I guess Shag and I off-air were talking at one point. And I was saying, oh, you know, what do you want to come back on for? See, I invite him. He doesn't invite himself on. And I was going through what I have, and I saw, like, oh, I've got some random issue called Batman Judgment. And he said, oh, that must tie into, you know, Day of Judgment. And I thought, you know, I am not going to cover a whole crossover thing just to do this one tie-in. So I'm going to scratch that whole thing. So that was the the joke there. So I thought it was kind of funny that it pops up here. But we're not really going to talk about it. Tom will, I guess, do a little brief thing as to what happens in there. But we're going to focus on World War III. Mm-hmm. So just to talk a, a little bit about JLA 32, it was called Inside Job. The cover date was August 1999. Writers Mark Wade and Devin Grayson. Penciler Mark Pajarillo. Inker, Walden Wong, Colors, Pat Garahay or Garahi, and Heroic Age. So there's this criminal organization that's known as Locus, and they have taken advantage of no man's land in Gotham City, and they release genonite spores into the population, which infect the bloodstreams of humans and transform them into robotic drones. Superman is monitoring the whole situation from the ionosphere, while Huntress is actually in the thick of things trying to quell angry mobs and opportunists in Gotham. The JLA begin to track down carriers of the Genonite spores, and Martian Manhunter suspects that these drones may even exist within the halls of power in Congress. Orion and the Flash are both infected with the spores, but the JLA are able to treat them in time. Superman tracks down the architects behind Locus and tells them that the JLA will not cede Gotham to their whims. So I guess it's – I was going to say a late crossover. It's a late crossover for Batgirl the Oracle since, of course, I'm I'm done with No Man's Land now. But a nice little nod to it at least that, hey, the JLA at least knew what was happening. We do see Babs and Batman in a window in a couple – I think it's just one panel – of the 
clock tower which Huntress stands upon. But I would say one of the most compelling parts of this issue actually is Huntress's role because she sort of contemplates what she as a JLA member actually brings to the table. But at the end, she finally understands her her role and feels like she actually deserves a place at the table, which is interesting once we get into World War Three and what yeah. happens there. Yeah, definitely. I remember actually having this issue probably because it had something to do with No Man's Land. Yeah. Because the cover is pretty – actually, I, I do like the cover to this issue. It's, it looks like the boots of Superman, Wonder Woman, I think Aquaman, uh, The Flash, and Martian Manhunter, and there's a – a sign that says welcome to Gotham like on the street below them. So <laughs> there's a nice dramatic cover where you don't have any action or anything like that. So yeah. do you have anything to add to this particular issue that you, you feel like people would need to know? No, nothing aware of it's just it's I guess it was you're right. It was just their way of kind of like showing that the GLA was aware of the situation in Gotham, but it was not um something that they can necessarily solve or take care of. Um mm. The like nanotechnology type of thing with the virus. I want to say that was about a year or two later used in similar fashion in Image's um, G.I. Joe revival or something. But uh, somebody who was – I read that years and years and years ago. So somebody who's more familiar with that might be able to correct me on that. But yeah, no, it's, it's a solid – these two issues are pretty solid. There's not there's not a ton to say about them. They're just they're, – they're fill-in issues because Mark Wade writes um, – Right. Both of them. So yeah. Devin Grayson also wrote um, part of it. Yep. So next up is 33 Altered Egos, cover date September 1999. Writer Mark Wade, penciler Mark Pajarillo, inker Walden Wong, and colorist John Kalitz. Batman tells the assembled leaguers he wants them to bring in Bruce Wayne, <laughs> which is a weird opening to the issue, whom he believes is behind the recent destruction of Gotham City. Wonder Woman and Superman go in search of Flash while the others go after Wayne. Incognito, Steel, Plastic Man, Big Bardo, Orion, and Green Lantern go to the Riviera Hotel in France where they find Wayne at a Baccarat table. When he sees Plastic Man, he makes for the exit and ditches the heroes. Meanwhile, in Keystone City, Superman and Wonder Woman help Flash, Walter West... First time I was hearing of that. Clean up the mess Dr. Alchemy is making. As the League finds Wayne and tries to take him down, they discover that he seems to go intangible at will. As it turns out, Wayne is one of the white Martians whom they eventually capture. It was interesting that a quote, and now I can't remember, I should have put who said that, but someone said there that, I think it was The Flash actually, that Bruce Wayne is Gotham's answer to Donald Trump. (laughs) I don't know if you caught that. And also one of the most hilarious scenes that I had to read twice to figure out what actually happened is that plastic man was big Bart's dress. dress and someone was she didn't even know so she's just wearing this dress that's you know somewhat revealing i mean it looks good on her yeah. and then someone says you know about hey nice dress and she says oh i thought you laid that out for me and then no that he didn't leave it out for her and she quickly re- and it's plastic man it was both horrifying and hilarious at the yes. same time Yes, because on the one hand, you're like, it is really, really fun. On the other hand, you're like, ooh, that's a little, <laughs> yeah. little, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it, it, it towed the line and they got away with the bit. Yes, it's true. Uh, I mean, with Plastic Man, it's he's kind of like, you know, if you think about it, he's like Shaq. 
Because we allow Shag to say she's hot repeatedly. Yes, yes. And while we may roll our eyes, we don't necessarily think that he's a terrible human being. So Plastic Man is is similar in that vein that like we give him way more potentially than he deserves to get away with. Mm-hmm. Would you add anything to this? Things that no, that no. This it's I, this is tying up loose ends from like I think the very first storyline of the JLA title because they fought they ended up fighting um, what ended up being White Martians and um, I think these are the same ones from that storyline uh, because they were all like kind of not mind wiped but in a sense they were and it's all coming back to them and then you know this is, this is a it's a solid one and done I vaguely remember this flash. Because I was reading The Flash on and off at this time. Uh, Mark Wade was still writing it, I think, with Brian Augustine. And um, he is – this Walter West Flash is like a Flash from the future who was there for a little while. And then by the time we hit the end of World War Three, Wally is back. But I do remember that Wally is also on the Titans at this point too. So I remember him appearing in a couple of issues of the Titans as well. Mm. But I don't remember what the story was because I think I might have stopped reading The Flash soon after this. Gotcha. Okay. I just thought it was like Walter West. Who is yeah. that? Basically, there were a handful of storylines in Mark Wade's run that were like really epic. But a lot of them ended up with Wally disappearing in some form or another, like either into the Speed Force or tossed into the future or trapped somewhere. And somebody so it's basically like once again, Wally's not around and, you know, or he's bouncing through time or whatever. And somebody else is taking over for him, whether it's Team Flash or, you know. Uh, like Jesse Quick or Impulse or somebody, or it's or it's like this guy or something. So mm, that's just okay. and, and I'm being very very general for what is sure. like a huge swath of <laughs> stuff from like all the way from like zero hour all the way up to like the end of the nineties. So. Gotcha. Okay. Well, shall we move on to JLA four thirty four? Yes, I am uh, covering thirty four. Uh, I'm going to briefly mention what's in issue thirty five because it it literally is a shoehorned in J- Day of Judgment crossover <laughs> that doesn't have any effect on the rest of the World War Three story. And then I'm going to cover uh, the entire World War Three story, which is issues thirty six through forty one. And I'm covering these stories as they were collected in the World War Three trade paperback. That was the uh, first trade paperback that came out in 2001. But I'm going to give you all the usual information as far as publication dates and creative teams. And I'm going to start with issue 34. JLA 34 came out on August 25th, 1999, and it had a cover date of October of 1999. The title is The Ant and the Avalanche. Our creative team is Grant Morrison, writer, Howard Porter, penciler, John Dell, inker, Ken Lopez, letterer, Pat Gary, colorist, and our editor was Dan Raspler. We open at the Watchtower. Oracle is telling Steel that they need more leaguers at Bell Reeve Prison to handle a jailbreak. Green Lantern is more or less handling a cell block full of super criminals on his own and without his ring as it has been stolen by a guy named the Red Dart. Aquaman shows up and starts helping, and we cut back to Oracle, who is with Batman. Batman asks where Superman is because he certainly can't help with the deteriorating situation. Superman, by the way, is doing his best to help a space station to not completely crash into Earth, slowing its descent as it burns through the atmosphere. Aquaman and GL continue to fight their way through Bell Reeve. Plastic Man shows up to help and notes that Zoriel has headed into the basement. Aquaman says that there's something there to check out. 
Then we get an interlude where General Wade Eiling is sitting on an asteroid in deep space. Someone pulls up on a spaceship, and that means he's headed back to Earth. Back at the Watchtower, someone has made his way through all of the League's defenses, and Steele and Huntress are on high alert. They discover that it is Mr. Miracle. Orion and his big dog, Sturmer, who kind of reminds me of Lockjaw from uh, yeah. Marvels and Humans, are then arrive by Boomtube to say that the evil of the old gods is on Earth. Back at the prison, the red dart walks around with GL's ring, and he brings it to Prometheus, who is waiting for him. Superman and Batman finally arrive at the prison and help quell the riot some more while Zoriel, Aquaman, and GL are in the basement and find Hector Hammond sitting in a chair encased in some sort of red and black looking eye looking thing. Aquaman <laughs> begins firing his Atlantean weapon and then Orion and Sturmer bust in and destroy that black eye. Orion then explains that the eye was an emissary of Mageddon, the evil that is approaching the Earth. The riot is cleaned up. Oracle explains to the League that she has been looking at the footage from the prison security cameras, and it says that it seems that the riot started when the warden executed a young inmate, and it that just escalated from there. Batman doesn't like the looks of any of this, and as he leaves her, she informs him that two wars have broken out in the last five minutes. Back at the Watchtower... The League discusses how the New Gods characters, Orion, Miracle, and Barda, were recruited to help protect Earth from such threats, and then we see that they're really in danger because people are landing on the moon, and Lex Luthor and Prometheus are ready to enact the latest plan of the new Injustice Gang. And then we get into issue 35, that's the Day of Judgment crossover. Uh, it is by James DeMatteis, Mark uh, Perilio, I guess is how we were saying it, and Walden Wong. It's basically uh, the League's first meeting confrontation with the Hal Jordan Spectre. And I did not read any Day of Judgment except for, I think, the issue of the Titans that crossed over into it. Uh-huh. I believe the Spectre was going crazy and threatening to destroy the world and he because he didn't have a host. And at the end, Hal Jordan becomes the host of the Spectre. I really only am mentioning it because it is the next issue because it, it really breaks the story. Like you could not read this issue and read 34 and skip over to 36 yeah. and you wouldn't miss anything. Do so. you know if when I posted that about my sh- my shag conversation there, mm-hmm. it seemed like people don't care for day of judgment. Is that true? Is that what you uh, know as well? I don't know. I completely missed it. I know Jeff Johns wrote it. Early in his uh, tenure at DC, I, I don't. I never read a single page of it to be completely honest, because this would have been what summer of '99, and by then I think I had reduced my pull list to like the books that I absolutely felt that I wanted or needed to get, because uh, I was like I just graduated college and I was like you know halfway to getting my apartment. You know, I just had other financial priorities at the time getting the latest DC crossovers is not my thing. So I, I can't tell you whether or not it's good. I, I don't know if it has, I don't think it's as reviled as Genesis is. Oh yes. Genesis. Um, so that was terrible, but, um, <laughs> I don't even think I ever finished that. I read it. I'm or I, I had it. I bought it, but I don't ever think I ever actually read the whole thing. I think I just, I just filed it away and then eventually sold it on eBay. So that's, that's how much attention it got from me. <laughs> Um, anything on issue 35 before we uh, we move on to World War III? Because we're going to talk about our opinions on 34 
um, with the other ones. No, not for me. Yeah, Oracle's not even in it, so. Yeah. All right, so let's move on it's to 36. It's worthless if she's not in it. it yeah. <laughs> All right, issue 36. This was October 27th, 1999. December 1999, cover date in the same creative team as issue 34. The title is World War Three Part 1. We open with Wonder Woman, Metron, and Big Barda arriving at the remains of a devastated Wonder World, the home of super beings the likes of which Earth hasn't seen. They find one hero alive, and he tells them how the heroes of the world turned against one another and literally tore all of Wonder World apart. Metron then says that they are losing hope and that nobody will be there to stop the Warbringer. Wonder Woman says that he's wrong. Back on the Watchtower, Mr. Miracle is telling the JLA and all of us what is headed for Earth. It's a super weapon of the old gods, one that survived their fall and spent the last 15 billion years trapped at the bottom of a gravity sink at the edge of space-time, and now it has escaped. The League then gets their briefing from Oracle, who is late to the meeting because she's working out some bugs in her system. That'll be important later. She says that arm cells have been up, but that might not be much to worry about. There are also rising tensions among several countries, and from what Orion says, this may correlate with the coming of Mageddon. It seems that most civilizations turn on themselves, and Mageddon is there for the final destruction. Aquaman vows to fight it, and Superman asks how long they have. Meanwhile, in Vanity, Oregon... Aztec wakes from a dead sleep to hear voices that appear to be coming from his helmet and telling him that it is time to fulfill his destiny. In the ghost zone, Prometheus and Luther, who we saw at the end of issue 34, scheme. Then the ship that rescued General Eiling in issue 34 arrives, and we see that it is piloted by the Queen Bee. They then get ready to assault the Watchtower with Lex pointing out that because they are in the ghost zone, they've essentially been allowed to just go right in an open back door and sneak up on the JLA. The first sign that something is wrong in this regard is when Zoriel and Plastic Man, who are putting a boulder hat in a case in the trophy room and talking about how it seems like heaven and, quote, the presence, which I believe is the DCU designation for God. Gotcha. In a sense, the Christian, the Judeo-Christian God, because that's who the specter serves and that's who Zoriel serves. So, but they use, I think, to not seem sacrilegious, I believe they use the phrase, the presence. So the the presence, uh, basically, uh, heaven and the presence are essentially giving up on Earth and the universe because of the impending threat. Zoriel then notices that Prometheus's helmet is missing. Batman, who is with Oracle, talks to Superman, who is in the Watchtower. He notes that no man, K-N-O-W, man, the villain that they fought in the pre-JLA miniseries, Justice League of Midsummer's Nightmare, which was the three-issue miniseries that preceded issue one of Grant Morrison's JLA. It was written by uh, Mark Wade and Fabian uh, Nicieza. Um, had, no man had warned them something about something called the Warbringer, and perhaps that this is why his plan was to turn every person on Earth into a metahuman. He figures that Wonder Woman, Barda, and Mectron will tell them more later and that he's more concerned with Prometheus. He points out that he did have the helmet analyzed and tested after the last time they faced him, which I believe we covered a little while ago. The Injustice Gang prepares to make its move. Oracle has Steel continue to run diagnostics on the Watchtower's systems because she's experiencing odd issues. He then notices something in the dining out section and it's, and it's then 
when Oracle is surprised by some unknown person in her office. She's able to alert Steele that they're already here before the gang attacks. Luther, who has hidden bombs all over the place, begins detonating. Huntress gets blown out to space, and if not for a quick thinking by Superman, who basically plants one on her, she would have suffocated <laughs> to death. And now we're right into issue number 37. Uh, this is World War III Part 2. It has the same creative team as our last issue, and this was out on November 24th, 1999, with a January 2000 cover date. Superman realizes that the Queen Bee is operating here and flies off. Batman faces off against what looks like some skinhead punks in Gotham that would be really, really at home in a Chris Claremont X-Men issue. And also in Gotham, we see that it is Prometheus who is with Oracle. He taunts her and even tries to goad her into betraying the team, but she doesn't bite, so he punches her right through the glass of the clock of the clock tower. Back on the moon, Superman and Steel go full force against Eiling, and Steel gets taken out by the Queen Bee, who zaps him into being a drone. Prometheus sits down at Barbara's computer and begins downloading all of the information he needs. We see that she did survive his attack by grabbing onto one of the hands of the clock, which is a solid Batgirl move, by the way. Prometheus checks in with Luther, who is seen in the shadows sitting at the head of the JLA conference table, running a sort of central command role. He checks in with the Queen Bee, who has signaled her drone ships to head for Earth. Meanwhile, Superman is getting the crap kicked out of him by General Eiling. Green Lantern is also in the Queen Bee's thrall, and he attacks Plastic Man and Huntress just as Queen Bee is ready to build her new hive in New York City. Lex continues to run tactical, and we see that his head is beginning to be surrounded by the same sort of entity that took over Hector Hammond. The League might not know it yet, but we do. Mageddon is at work here. And indeed he is. While Eiling continues to destroy Superman, we hear news reports that war is starting to break out all over the world. Then a ship arrives at the watchtower and its occupant gets out. It's John Johns, the Martian Manhunter, who is ready to return to active duty. Issue 38 is World War Three, Part 3. We have the same creative team as our last two parts. This came out on December 22, 1999, and it has a February 2000 cover date. We open with Metron, Wonder Woman, and Orion heading back to Earth, hoping they can warn everyone in time because they are face-to-face with Mageddon. The situation on Earth and in the Watchtower has become ultimately dire. War is breaking out all over the globe. A newsman kills himself on the air. Batman is on the Watchtower now and is ready to face off against Prometheus. GL has freed himself from the Queen Bee's influence, but now, face-to-face with Lex Luthor, finds himself unable to use his ring. But he's not facing Luther. He's facing the giant eye of Mageddon. It has removed the will behind the ring and is about to zap Kyle when Martian Manhunter swoops in to save him. Meanwhile, Batman fights Prometheus, who has put on the helmet that he stole from the trophy room uh, because the other one that he had been using got wrecked in the fight with Oracle. And Batman reveals that as a cautionary measure a few months ago, he programmed that particular helmet to give Prometheus the fighting style and movements of... Professor Stephen Hawking. Bum, bum, bum. Needless to say, Batman takes him down. Yeah. Wonder Woman and Orion finally arrive at the Watchtower, and after assessing the situation, get ready to take down Mageddon. Metron arrives in Gotham, and uh, we're going to have to talk about how weird Oracle looks on this particular page. But anyway, (laughs) he gives Oracle a mother box. Here's some wonky art. Um, Superman and Eiling fight. 
well, it's really more that Superman continues to get the other crap knocked out of him. I see where they got this bit on the early seasons of the Justice League cartoon. <laughs> Remember, because like Superman would always like get taken out like yeah, early. They made him weaker. Yeah, that was one of the criticisms. Uh, Jean then tells Superman to stand down because Mageddon controls him now, and he's actually being uh, talking about Eiling, and he's and um, he's actually being led right into their trap, which is Orion and Sturmer, the big dog. Sturmer, not Orion, fights Eiling. Aquaman quells a civil war in Atlantis by telling the people that if they want to fight, they will fight for him. We then head to New York, where thousands of citizens are now drones of the Queen Bee, and they're building a giant hive. Wonder Woman, Barda, Steel, and Plastic Man sneak around looking for an opening. Plastic Man rambles on about how he used to know a hero named Red Bee, and that the old hero once told him the bees cannot see the color red. Which I, for some reason in my synopsis, completely misspelled as R-E-A-D, but so they can't read the color. Way to go, Paris. <laughs> anyway, the important thing about this was that I had an onion on my belt, which was the style. The yeah, time. yeah, yeah. At the JLA North Embassy, Mr. Miracle gathers the heroes of the DCU in sort of a monitor satellite on Crisis and Infinite Earths type of scenario. This includes members of the JLA, the Titans, and Young Justice, among others. Uh, he tells them whom Mageddon is. They're then interrupted by Aztec, who stumbles in and says he is blind. He's blind. He just looks terrible, like beaten up. He says he is blind because he has looked right into the face of Mageddon. On the Watchtower, Jean, Zoriel, and GL face Luther, who's trapped inside that giant Mageddon eyeball. Well, Jean takes the psychic attack approach. GL appeals to Luther's giant ego, saying that he can't believe that the greatest criminal mind of our time, of our time, is being beaten by a giant eyeball. They want freeing Luther, they destroy the eyeball, and then they order the evacuation of the Watchtower. Soon... Superman, Batman, and Martian Manhunter are inside Jean's ship, and they head to the Ghost Zone. Zoriel stays behind to blow up the Watchtower, and we head into next issue, which is issue 39, World War III Part 4. Same creative team. It came out on January 26, 2000, with a March 2000 cover date. Aztec sits in a chair in the JLA embassy and says that he failed to defeat the Warbringer. The heroes talk among themselves and a little bit about what's some of what they have faced and seen so far and they and then divide in, uh, into different battalions. GL arrives with Lex Luthor who says he doesn't remember anything about what happened. GL then gets them all ready to fight the Queen Bee's drone ships that are orbiting the planet. Eiling fights the big dog, Sturmer, in the ghost zone while Superman and Jean do their best to fight him off. They eventually defeat him when Sturmer pushes himself and Eiling out of an airlock into the zone. It means the big dog is dead, but Orion is happy that Sturmer died an honorable death. Warrior. Hmm. Batman gets hooked into the all-league telepathic link, which hurts a little bit, uh, so that he can communicate with everyone. Superman and Orion decide to go headlong at Mageddon and Huntress is about to kill Prometheus when Batman shows up and stops her and then he fires her which not the time for this crap Bruce seriously anyway back in New York the Queen Bee continues to build her hive our heroes make their move they get some shots in but they quickly have their backs against the wall as Plastic Man goes completely putty but they keep fighting 
Oracle then hooks the mother box up to her equipment. It basically gives her what she calls digital telepathy. She is connected to everyone and notes that bombers are flying in all over the place and everyone has to get out there and stop it all. She then gives us the title drop and we're in JLA number 40, which is World War Three, Part 5. It had a publication date of February 23rd, 2000, a cover date of April 2000. The same creative team with the exception of the fact that Drew Garachi uh, or Garassi has replaced John Dell on the inks. I think it's Garachi. Anyway. In space, Geraci. Because okay. I asked uh, Chuck Dixon when he was on. Okay. In space, Mageddon arrives. Things get worse. Oracle gives reports of all sorts of catastrophes and war happening around the world. India launches nukes at Pakistan and destroys a major city. Pakistan gets ready to retaliate. Batman, Huntress, and Martian Mantor and Hunter arrive on Earth via boom tube. Kyle falls out of space because his ring won't work, and he's saved by Metron, who points out that he has the will over the ring and he can get it to work again. Huntress just walks away muttering, he fired me. We get flashes of heroes fighting military personnel and other hostiles all over the world and then flash to New York where Queen Bee is beating Barda pretty badly and Steel finally gets the opportunity to use his boom tube generator to send her back to her hive world. As she goes, all of her swarm follows. Diana holds Barda Pieta style and then is called for an emergency JLA meeting. Steel returns to his workshop to fashion a new glove for his hand, and Animal Man arrives to talk about how he thinks he knows how Mageddon kind of works and thinks. The meeting convenes. John mentions that the Flash, who has been missing the whole time, had mentioned some fluctuations in the Speed Force while they were on Wonder World, and that might mean all hope may not be lost. And Animal Man shows up. Wonder Woman bursts out of the conference room to tell everybody they have a plan, while John then heads into the mind of Mageddon, which has Superman in its thrall. It is just then when the Flash, the real one this time, Wally West, shows up with a huge being in tow. And we head into our finale, JLA number 41. The same creative team as issue number 40. It came out on March 29th, 2000. It had a May 2000 cover date. It is World War Three, Part 6, Mageddon. We open with Zoriel in heaven, basically doing a Jor-El appeal to the council, and they do the same thing the Kryptonian council did to Jor-El by saying, no thank you, they reject him. On Earth, Oracle sends a digital telepathic message to everyone on the planet, telling them that Mageddon has initiated global suicide and they all have to fight it. At the JLA embassy, the Flash explains that he has returned with Glimmer, a hero from Wonder World, who tells them all to prepare the armies of man. Batman bursts into the JLA conference room because Nightwing had them call him back because Jean has been screaming. Bruce tells everyone to clear out and then asks Jean to bring him into his telepathic link with Superman. He's basically going to do the same thing that GL did to Luther, appeal to Superman himself to get Clark to sever the link with Mageddon. Speaking of GL, he is giving himself a pep talk. and We get a 90s version of one of the classic I remember the oath, I will say the oath, and the ring will work again Green Lantern moments. Because Kyle never had to do the oath. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. From what I remember, I don't think Kyle ever really was the sort of Hal Jordan, I'm going to do the no evil shall escape my sight oath in like those big moments. I'm, I might be mistaken, but I think they're trying to go for that that sort of moment, but give him a, a different spin on it. Gotcha. 
Steel, Owlman, and Wonder Woman meet Blue Beetle and Black Lightning on Easter Island. And Animal talks about how Mageddon is preying on the reptilian part of our brains, and that's what's turning us against one another. Wonder Woman then makes her never reference to No Man and the Midsummer Nightmare uh, storyline, and his plan, which was to turn everyone on Earth into a metahuman. Then they begin building an anti-war ray. In California... Zatanna, Black Canary, The Ray, Mary Marvel, and a number of other heroes take on armies. The battle is finally stopped by Aquaman, who tells the surface armies to lay down their arms or face the armies of Atlantis. Zorio leaves his meeting having been rejected, but he he leaves a host of angels say that they're with him. Aztec flies toward Mageddon, finds Orion, and heals him. Orion rallies and gets ready to fight again. Green Lantern has finally recovered and he's ready. Batman is in Superman's mind and in his chaos and despair. He yells at Clark saying, we always win. Orion attacks and is taken down. Aztec arrives and Superman is now slightly more conscious. He warns Aztec that Mageddon will take him too. But Aztec says that he was planning on that and that he is a weapon that exists to help destroy this old god. I'm going to butcher this. Tezcatlipoca? which is really just an old computer. Aztec then blows himself up and releases an enormous amount of energy, which wounds Mageddon and buys them time. Bruce continues to yell at Clark to get his act together, and Kyle shows up to free him. The angels land on Earth to help end the wars. On Easter Island, the heroes begin building their ray, and Black Lightning tries to get it going, but can't. Then Glimmer, the hero from Wonderworld, shows up and lights it, calling upon the armies of man. We cut to scenes all over the world, and Oracle telling everyone that they all now have superpowers. Everyone on the planet, without a second thought, takes off to fight Mageddon, with Wonder Woman leading the charge. Mageddon throws its legions at them, and... For those of you who don't have the comic in front of you, think red versions of the Anti-Monitor Shadow Demons from Crisis mm-hmm. on Infinite Earths, uh, especially issue number 12. And many humans die, but they continue to fight. Batman's lecture finally gets through to Superman, and he heads into the heart of Mageddon, where he absorbs the anti-sunlight inside its core. The drones fall, and the warhead is disarmed. The war is over, and Oracle tells everyone that there will be a tomorrow. A week later, the Watchtower is being rebuilt. Metron talks about the fourth world and the coming fifth world, and then he says that he and the new gods are no longer needed. He, Barda, Orion, and Mr. Miracle leave. The seven key members prepare to head out for some R&R when Oracle interrupts the situation to tell them that Dr. Destiny is attacking Detroit. While he says that Dr. Destiny is a lightweight, ten minutes tops, Batman scowls, but Superman says, come on, we're the Justice League. You know you love it. And they fly off to face the danger. The end. The end. Oh, man. Thank you for that. That was – there was a lot that you had to get through <laughs> on that one. Yeah, it's a big story. As as always happens to you. So I thought what we do is go maybe each part, and I've got sure. some questions per, and then at the end we'll talk about the story as a whole. Mm-hmm. So with part one – just right off the bat with the villains that we have, this new Injustice game gang, Prometheus, mm-hmm. Queen Bee, General Eileen, and Luther. What do you think about this particular team? In my opinion, it's a bit of a rag-tag team in the fact of you wouldn't necessarily think of these particular people working together. But, you know, what, what are your thoughts on them? 
like the chemistry that they might have? Does it make sense that they're together? Is the threat level pretty high and does it make sense? I have to flip back into my trades and I don't have them in front of me of Morrison's JLA to see whether or not they fought the Queen Bee at any point in the last 34 issues. But I know that between Eiling, Luther, and Prometheus, they all fought them as well. I mean, Luther's Luther, but um, the yeah. like at the end of like Rock of Ages was when he had the Injustice Gang like for was one of the first attacks they had. When I think the Joker was involved in that one with the Philosopher's Stone, I think it was like right before Oracle starts. I think it's like the last storyline before Oracle joins the team. So we didn't cover that. So it was like right before our coverage. But gotcha. I'm pretty sure. So like this is Morrison's last storyline. I think Mark Wade takes – I think Tower of Babel is like the next storyline or or pretty soon after this. I believe Mark Wade takes over full time um, on the title after this. So this is this is the conclusion of, of what Morrison started back when he – um, back when they kind of seeded things in the getting the team back together and then JLA number one. So it kind of makes sense that to me that these villains who they have fought before, they're fighting, they've teamed up and they're fighting again, kind of like a Sinister Six type of situation. But they're all within Morrison's thing. And he's trying to bring like all of this to a head. So it's like, th- let's throw everything they've had at the JLA. So it it makes – that's what makes sense to me. And Luther's going to Luther, but um, Eiling and – what's his name? Uh, Prometheus are clearly out for revenge anyway. Yeah. So it's kind of like the JLA revenge squad. But again, I think it it does work. And I think they each have their particular attributes that all add to the team. You know, Luther is – a mastermind, and I would say the leader. Prometheus also has, I think he and Luther mm-hmm. complement each other really well. They both seem to be on that level. General Eileen is, I think, the brawn, and then the Queen Bee can sort of add the the minions because she's able to hive mind everybody. So she, I think, is is the, the boots on the ground there. So I think they yeah. all add something special. You know, looking at them, I wouldn't necessarily, necessarily think, oh, yeah, of course, they're, you know, that team is going to be together. But then you're right about, you know, mentioning the Sinister Six because, I mean, if you looked at that team, mm-hmm. like, why? Why are they working together? So <laughs> I guess that's what makes a fun villain team-up story is that there are these characters that you wouldn't expect working together and then they do and i think it i think the the threat level is uh, it makes sense it's realistic and then of course it's it's more just a piece of the actual puzzle of you know what's behind everything yeah and i noticed that i i liked how at least in in 34 with the prison riot it's hector hammond who is kind of when you match him with Luther, he's not part of the Injustice Gang. He just happens to be affected by Mageddon. And it's a little bit of foreshadowing for Luther being taken over by the creature because Hector Hammond is basically a big brain. Right. And Luther is – this version of Luther is very much a – is the corporate brain – you're right. You're the tactical, the strategic person. So um, that's – it makes sense that he would be the one to be taken over by uh, by Mageddon during the course of this thing. I also like the fact that they sneak in through the back door of the watchtower without anybody realizing it. Like Dave, it's it's a case of villains learning from their mistakes. So it makes the 
Batman planning 15 million stages ahead thing with the Stephen Hawking bit work because they were planning. They were obviously planning ahead like they were planning smartly as opposed to just like, you know, going in there and attacking. Yeah. So. And I think when you have someone like Luther at the helm, that that would never be a situation that they would do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I will say that because I have more questions on other parts, rather not not as much this one. But I have the individual issues and there are letters, letter pages, of course. (laughs) And one of them, it was so weird because normally I just skim through them. Yeah. Someone wants Sarge Steele and Oracle to become romantically involved. Ew, isn't he like... (laughs) 30 years old, is it? I don't know what the age difference is. Let me pull this up. Are you going to, like, historical? Oh, that's too bad. Indeed, let's see here. Sarge, da 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 Oh, what is this here? Oh, in a future issue of JLA, I would like to see two compulsive workers, Sarge Steele and Barbara Gordon, become romantically involved with each other. Furthermore, such a subplot would make most both characters more developed as if Barbara needs more development. Indeed, have Sarge cook dinner for Barbara. Let's <laughs> it's almost as if I wrote it, but it sounds ridiculous. Let Sarge and Barbara vacation in Hawaii together. If her friends say he's too old for her. Oh, that was you. And if his friends say, why is he tr- tying himself down with a girl in a wheelchair? Sarge and Barbara can successfully overcome the skeptics in their lives. Moreover, <laughs> if Sarge steals a talented amateur chef, if Barbara Gordon is a gifted amateur painter, and they bring out these qualities in each other, I think it's wonderful. And this is from John Rolfing, Cald- Caldwell, Idaho. So I don't Sorry, know what John, John is doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, isn't that what... <laughs> Now I'm start. You watched Mad Men, right? Of course. Yeah, remember? Uh, just that reminded me a little bit. The two workaholics working together all the time reminded me a little bit about of of, of Steggy at the end. Oh, yeah. Of course, I love Stan and Peggy. So, um, yeah. But yeah, no, no, terrible idea. Terrible idea. That's what. Yeah, I don't know. I've never has. Have we even read any of the issues with Sarge Steele in them? I start still was towards the end of the Titans and the the new Titans and stuff like that. So I've seen him, but I know I've never really, we, he, we may have seen him in a couple of episodes, but I don't. Yeah. I don't really, the only, my yeah. only experience with him is in the, um, legends of tomorrow. Yeah. So, which I don't watch very much. I may have seen him in old, like, um, uh, check like that sort of stuff way back in the day too. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, with part two, we've got we were end we ended on a cliffhanger a little bit with part one that someone sees Oracle and says, "Oh, so you're Oracle," and we find out that it's Prometheus, of course. And there's this this really interesting conversation that Prometheus and Oracle have, and Prometheus is insulting. But he also almost is able to glimpse kind of beneath the layers of the person. And this happens again with Huntress. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, with Prometheus, I mean, he is really intelligent. Do you think that he sees things as they truly are? Or is he just really arrogant and he wants to drag everyone down and and really get at them in some way? I think he – it's a combination of both. I think he's arrogant and I think he thinks he can read people. Better than anybody else can read people. And so I think he's playing off what he assumes about her by based on observation. He's trying to 
kind of goad her into like, you know, I know more about you than you realize. And he's trying to intimidate her to either um, admit something or, or, or become vulnerable or come over to his side or what. <laughs> so you've, have you ever seen the breakfast club? Yes. All right. Remember the scene where Bender, Judd Nelson's character is generally just like a jerk to Molly, to Molly Ringwald's character through most of the movie until the end. But um, the scene where he's standing across from her in the desk and he begins, are you a virgin? I bet you a million dollars that you are. And then like, he goes into this whole thing, like over the panties, no bra, Calvin's rolled up in the front seat past 11 on a school night and she's just like the whole time she's looking like right at him and um and like because he, he's trying to get her to admit something he's trying to get her upset he's trying to get her to cry and like she won't break this kind of reminded me of that scene where he's just like he's just making assumptions based on what he perceives as her vulnerabilities and Barbara's just basically like Barbara is not falling for it so then he does then he punches her yeah, I, I applaud Barbara for not falling into that trap, for having an emotional response, because I, I think he is getting somewhere in the fact of, like, I, I think he is speaking some partial truth there mm-hmm. that would, you know, anyone who's unhinged would probably yeah. uh, bite at those, and, and she's able to stay calm. I'm, I thought it was interesting that he offers her the chance to walk again, of course, via technology, and it reminds me of... I don't remember what his name was, but during that <laughs> crossover that I also don't remember that I did with Shag, where basically like this guy from hell came up and was offering. Oh, uh, Underworld Unleashed, right? Yes, 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 yes. Because he offers her. I can't remember what that man's name is. I feel like all Neron is. Yes, it was near. Okay. Yeah. I knew on was at the end of his word. Offers that, uh, you know, it just seems to come at her like. You know, do you want your legs back? Do you want yeah. your legs back? Which I guess for, you know, someone who had the use of their legs and then lost it, that would be at the forefront of their mind. But just how strong that she doesn't, mm-hmm. of course, take that chance. And, and she knows what's truly important at the, you know, period of time and on the current mission. Can we uh, briefly discuss the fact that for some reason Pat Garrahy is under the compression that Barbara is a brunette? Right. So, <laughs> yes, I... I'm not sure what's going on there. Yeah, yeah, Professor and Alan and I like to talk about Barbara's hair. Yeah, the style is basically, you know, what we've been seeing with Barbara in the 90s. But yeah, yeah for whatever reason, it's all of a sudden turned into a, prun- a brunette. So, yeah. Could, do you think if you did not know that it was Barbara in reading this, do you think you would wonder who this particular character was? I think I could eventually pick it up based on context, especially since um, she deals a lot with Batman. Right. I mean, Batman yeah, knows who true. she is and stuff, so I figure that I think I could pick up the fact that she's Barbara Gordon. But it's just, and, and Howard Porter does not do her any favors in terms of the way he draws her. I think he draws her too old. Mm. I think she's supposed to be in her twenties, right? Yeah, she, she looks like she's like at the. There's the bottom of one page, and she looks like somebody's like you know, I don't know. She just looks like she's like ten years t- too older, you know, for who she is. So, mm, okay, I'll have to. Yeah, it was that one part that you mentioned. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll get we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Do you think there will be any repercussions, or what would they be of someone now knowing who Oracle is? 
There would be, unless I don't know how much of a threat Prometheus is beyond the storyline. Because he doesn't necessarily reveal it to anybody, because he's taken down at the end of the thing by by Batman. And I think he's left more or less debilitated. So I don't know. you'd You'd have to find somebody who has... Oh no! Wait, he does show up again in a. a I I I had blocked that out of my mind. <laughs> Green Arrow kills him. Oh, years later okay. in a storyline that had the most unnecessary death in comics in my comics collecting career. Oh, James Robinson, you have sins to pay for. Interesting. Yes, it was um, many years later. He does show up again. Um, he kills somebody. I just I don't want to really get into it. But beyond it's not his daughter, is what? it? Not the yeah. daughter, is it? The young yeah. girl? Oh, that yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. He's about. he's okay. the one who I believe I believe it's the I have the issues. I've never read them, but I believe Green Arrow kills him at the end of a, was a Cry for Justice or whatever it was called, because I think he predeceases the person who who uh, ends up killing Leanne Harper, which again like did not need to happen. But uh, between this issue and that issue, I don't know what happens to him. But if somebody did know who Oracle was, especially since she operates out of what is clearly a landmark in Gotham, which is now currently like no man's land, I think that would be a threat. But I also think that Barbara and Bruce are confident enough to take the threat on when they're going – when they have to. Yeah, I think with Oracle now – and just being so well known and people hearing that title, I think that Prometheus has something, but maybe given the current situation and the mission, doesn't he doesn't really have time to capitalize on it. And I, I think that's why he's probably so shocked when he sees her, because yeah. I think he knew of the name and then he's like, Wait, what? You're an Oracle? You're you know, you're a girl, you're in a wheelchair. And so it's just not what he at all expected. Yeah. So I think if he had, I mean, given, I don't know where he goes after this besides, you know, getting killed, but that would be something that he could potentially use and profit mm-hmm. on because that's that's some big, important information. I mean, we see later on, years later now, yeah. how important it is for Calculator to find out who Oracle yeah. is. So, yeah. It's one of those big things. But yeah, it was shocking for me, even though it's 1999, but I was like, oh my gosh, who found out? And you don't know until the next issue when it pulls back the the panel and you see who was saying that he's... Mm -hmm. I thought it was funny, Plastic Man as a bee. (laughs) <laughs> when uh, he's he's doing that, and then of course Superman kissing Helena. Of course, it's really just a breath of life and giving her, yeah, uh, resuscitating her. But she seems pretty impacted by it. Yeah, I do like that. She's like, wait, what? Because she's almost. I think she's almost like suffocated by that point. She's she's pretty close to because she's been swept out. But yeah, and the the, the eye is gross. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So part three, when I turned the page and I saw that, I actually like shouted aloud and I said, what the, uh, because it is really, really creepy. I mean, uh, accolades to the, the artists mm-hmm. and what, whatever prep team was there to, to come down with what Mageddon would look like because yeah, it absolutely is, is very unsettling. Yeah. So in part three, we've got Batman using, as you said, 
in your synopsis the the technology to defeat Prometheus, specifically turning him into having the same physical capabilities as Stephen Hawking, which is very little. Yeah. And I wondered <laughs> at all, and this is you know maybe this is like my empathetic side as you think about how how this could affect other people. But do you think this was at all like? You know, little insensitive, um, or at like, is it near the line or anything? Doing that sort of thing, like stepping out of the comic and just as a writer and doing that, or do you think that's just us looking back and maybe trying to be more empathetic towards other people and and thinking how it might be received? I guess it could be perceived as offensive. But given the context where you're going toe-to-toe somebody in a ring and you've programmed his powers to re- – you basically c- Captain Kirked this whole thing because okay. it's it's Kirk – he reprogrammed his helmet. Like Kirk reprogrammed the Kobayashi Maru, which was a no-win scenario. And Batman is in a very close situation to a no-win scenario and he had taken the time long ago to say, you know, hey, if he ever comes for this, here we go and – the program loaded itself and all of a sudden boom yeah i i i think considering the context and considering what came before this i don't think he was poking any fun at anybody with uh with uh you know stephen hawking's condition um especially considering that he had barbara just the prior issue stand up to not figuratively speaking, stand up to Prometheus and still use her upper body strength to hit, to knock him around a little bit. And then use her upper body strength to grab on to, you know, like remember what it was like to be back girl and grab onto, um, that clock arm. Uh, you know, I think that's a pretty respectful sequence as far as, you know, cause she should be dead. <laughs> she right. should be street yeah. pizza, but she was Batgirl for a true. few years. So there's just the motor instinct of reaching out, grabbing onto that. You know, she can. She only has her upper body to support herself, but she's obviously been taking care of herself. So it's 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 a you know it's a. Um, I think that's pretty positive. And then you have this, yeah. So I don't think I I honestly don't think it's offensive, especially considering the context. Gotcha. Yeah, I do like how she's able to reach out and do that. And I mean, Barbara has proven her upper body strength. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm glad that we got to see that here. But what an unsettling scene to see her pushed out of the clock tower like that. So like two pages after the Stephen Hawking thing is when Metron shows up in in her office. And she's like, that's some chair, which I actually thought was clever. Like Barbara has a sense of humor. (laughs) So yes, they let absolutely. her have her sense of humor, but that that see that panel, she's so weirdly drawn. It's <laughs> so it a, yeah, odd yeah, looking. I, I can't even describe it. It's yeah. it's like it looks like one of those Burger King um, kids. They had those five kids yeah. that were like nerdy people, mm-hmm. or I guess there's a jock and stuff. It looks like one of them. Yeah, almost. Yeah, uh, yeah but <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Poor Babs. It's a cool upgrade, though. Yes, At least we absolutely. finally have her doing something. Mm, yeah, very true. Yeah. So Mageddon, as we find out, and we started to see it a little bit in issue 34, that he's able to manipulate rage and violence. And 
I wondered why he doesn't he he doesn't seem to have either the capability or he doesn't choose to manipulate the heroes. It just seems like it's more people with ill intent. And then I will say, with the exception of Warrior, aka Guy Gardner, because <laughs> it seems like he was being taken over a little bit. Is he not able to? If that's true, why? Or do you think it's something that we're just not seeing and the heroes are having internal struggles, but they're able to sort of clamp it down and, and overcome it, unlike people who, I guess, have <laughs> those weaker sides and, of course, villains and things like that? You know, I think maybe he doesn't really offer an explanation as to why a lot of these heroes are able to to fight, you know, the way they are. Um I don't know. Perhaps there, there's that that there. Perhaps there is a will there, and there's um, so they're less susceptible to fall to you know this big bad. Um, yeah, I, I, unless I missed it, I don't know what the explanation is as to why the heroes are able to um, are able to not be like completely affected by. But get unless it's a unless. I'll no prize it by saying, although no, because like people like Batman and Black Canary and Oracle don't have, and Blue Beetle don't have a meta gene, so I couldn't even, I couldn't even, yeah. you know, I couldn't even posit to like, you know, say meta meta gene protects them. I don't know. I just there's just maybe there's something in in the the heroic nature that it that it takes longer to affect them or something. Yeah. So maybe he is like wide sweeping in his power but we just don't see with the heroes or maybe he just intentionally goes after the villains because he knows that he's going to easily be able to get done what he needs done yeah. because they are susceptible um as far as i know but the weird thing is in 34 you said that the warden was the one who started it all so you kind of wonder about that i mean not, not necessarily crooked. saying that yeah. all war- <laughs> yeah you know not necessarily assuming that all wardens are great but it's just interesting that the warden was the but, one who started yeah, everything the, the warden though the warden um executed a young prisoner who they saw that execution as an injustice so they maybe who was preying on the warden's right. ruthlessness yeah and then internally yeah. he hated these criminals so he's preying on their their hate and the fact that he would go so like I guess the difference between him say him and Batman who would not go that far and would not consider that and has the will to do that he would um which I guess on some level justifies Bruce's firing Helena because uh, suppose yeah. like let's just let's 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 just put aside the fact that Batman's a misogynistic jerk if if Helena will go that far, then possibly Mageddon can influence her easier than sure. say if that were um, Black Canary in that situation and she wasn't going to do it or something. Yeah. So talking about that, do you, do you think that it was Mageddon influencing her, or do you think this was the old Helena coming back? I think maybe. I don't know. You see, I think I, I just chalked it up to Helena just being fed up. So maybe again was influencing her a little bit. Maybe it got to her that the situation was escalating, and he felt the need to fire her there. But he, I don't know if he was thinking about again was or his motivation was perhaps like, oh, she's she's doing it again. I need to fire her because there's no place for her in this because I'm a jerk. And I will give I will give <laughs> I will give six robins who I lead to their deaths 
20 chances, but the moment a girl screws up, you know, so. Yeah. Well, and it's also sad just because we've seen how much she has grown. Uh-huh. I think not a, not only in Justice League, but also, and I guess I'd have to think about, I should have done research with this, about where this issue falls in terms of, of month or part with no man's. I was just about to ask. We do see at the end. Okay. Yeah. So I guess I I could always. So so could we place this um, before she puts on the back row costume? What month was it? Um, This is what issue? December, 1999. Yeah. December 99. Okay. Here we go. Dark victory. Azrael, agent of the bat. No Man's Land crossover. Batman 574. Endgame. Oh. Oh, and there's Huntress on the cover, actually. Mm. Oh, so we're nearing the end there. Okay. Endgame 2. So that's near the Yeah, it's at the end. So, again, I mean, just the fact that she's proven herself. I don't know how she's both in Gotham and in this particular war, but that's okay. Comics. Yeah. But I feel like she, I mean, she made mistakes in No Man's Land, but she, I think at, at the very end, she very much proved herself. And then here, you know, she had that wonderful issue that we just recapped, mm-hmm. 33. And I think in other stories that we've done, she's proven herself. And so it, it is really unfortunate that she does have this moment, moment of weakness. She doesn't kill him. I mean, Batman could have just told her to stop and, and that would have been enough. But I guess he's fallen back to not being able to trust her. But I feel like wasn't the purpose of, of putting her on the team was almost a way to have her step up and, and prove herself and, and be the hero that he believed her to be? Yeah, I think so. And then, but but when this happens, in my opinion, and and the firing really affects her. I felt like, I mean, in part five, it really. I mean, they're. Ta- I can't remember who is addressing her. If I flip through, I'll see it. But she's not even listening. She's like tuned out. Like it's really affected her. But when this sort of thing happens, it's almost like again. And, and you know, I've said this before. Don and Josh get on me that Batman like put someone up to fail. Mm-hmm. So did he put her on the JLA now instead to like give her a chance? But of course, you know he's always going to be watching, and he could count on her failing, and that's happened. And bam, you failed me. You're out of there. And that's you know that's my problem sometimes with with poor Huntress and what happens to her. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm on your side here. I think that he's he's a <gasps> final. He's he's just. <laughs> He's a misogynistic prick. I'm sorry. Oh, my goodness. So one time, Donovan, he accused me of, he says, you know what? I feel like you don't really like Batman too much. Do you Do you like Batman, Tom? It depends on the era or stories that I'm reading. As a character, like the yeah, person, character. the personality and everything. Yeah, it, it, most of the time, yeah. Um, this particular iteration of Batman like grates on me a little bit because I just find him to be too like it's almost like too on the nose like you know oh wow you thought ahead I mean granted it's a pretty good plan to think ahead and like you know booby trap um, this weapon I don't get the trophy room concept anyway but um, especially like, here's oh, Prometheus's yeah. helmet wait somebody can come in and steal this and use this but at least we booby trapped it yeah. so I get the whole booby trapping if you're able to but at the same time it's just like you know yeah I thought a million steps ahead this time and, you just, and then he's like firing her because he's it's just not the time Bruce so <laughs> I don't mid mission yeah, yeah. 
In part four, was it me or did the art change? Doesn't it look different than the other parts? I'm flipping through. I'm just going to find. I mean, maybe it's layout. Maybe the coloring or the inking is heavier, I know but that, it just looks different. I know that at one point, my trade does not have, um, unless you find the actual title page of the actual issue, the trade does not distinguish from parts. So I don't oh, know where okay. one issue ends and one issue begins unless, like, you can t- definitely tell. Because, they, like, you know, modern trades put the covers between them. This had, like, one page with, right. like, four or five or six covers on it. Part four, the inker is the same. It's part five where the inking changes. So maybe he was just inking a little bit heavy in some in some places. Maybe it was a rush. And it might know. be the layout. Be- yeah. Yeah. The panels have, like, more of an ornate. Yeah circumference around them in in four Uh, at least in the beginning it's more decorative but it just it seems to make a shift and then it goes back i mean not like a bad shift i I just noticed that it was it was pretty different yeah so well in part five i i finally realized that wonder woman was diana (laughs) okay instead you know because i'm well i'm used to oh yeah yeah because it's going back and forth too yeah so. Yeah, so I was I finally realized that one. But what I really liked in part five is how Flash talks, like the style of talking for him because he just wants to get everything out. Yes. So it's very almost syncopated, yes. which makes sense for him. Like he doesn't want to waste time on mm-hmm. overuse of, <laughs> I guess, vowels. I don't know. So I thought that was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, that was that was pretty cool. Um, I'm looking at, I do like this shot where, oh, is it? It might be it might be the very end of part four where Mageddon actually shows up and Kyle says, I can confirm vi- visual contact. And um, he's like, are we fighting that? And it's just this huge all you it, it Mageddon is so huge. It doesn't fit into the panel. And Earth's like, yeah, you know, it, like the bridge of its nose. I think that was a re- that's a really, really cool shot. And then you get to like th- this is the thing. And, and this is this is one of the things I have. um I don't know if it's a, it's a problem I have with the storyline or what, but there is like widespread catastrophe all over the earth. Like literal nuclear war breaks out between India and Pakistan. Um, I don't know how much the ramifications are. So I'm like thinking of like the rest of the world after this is all over. Like, how do you clean up from this? You know? Like, are there global sociopolitical ramifications of, like, Mageddon and the JLA saving everybody? Or is it just like, okay, now on to the next adventure? So, because I, I like the global scale of all this, but then, I, but then I start thinking, like, two, three, four weeks, months ahead, and it's like, how does the world bounce back from this? You know, how does it affect the rest of the world, you know? So, but maybe I'm just kind yeah. of maybe I'm thinking in those terms. I really shouldn't be. I should just be looking at superheroes fighting a big monster. Well, no, well, sure, but I think it it does. That's a good question that you're asking, and it was interesting because Oracle talks about thousands yeah. dying, and I thought, my goodness, only thousands? Are you kidding me? You know, once you just said about nuclear war and all this stuff, I thought I would think millions, you know, might be dead, not thousands. I mean, maybe hundreds of thousands, but I just thought that was interesting. But yeah, what happens afterwards when everyone's sort of, quote-unquote, calmed down? You're not going to forget what had yeah. gone on. So I think pieces would probably be more tenuous and, and alliances weakened. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to see what that Yeah, Morrison 
So what, one of the th- a couple of the things I really liked about like uh, Crisis because Crisis is one of my favorite stories of all time. And one of the things I always liked about that was that every once in a while, Marv Wolfman would give us moments of the average person or something, or and how they were affected or something. And a lot of the thing with Crisis is that the, I think the people forgot like most of it um, because of just you know time travel, time rearranging continuity stuff. But then you have like other crossovers where like regular citizens are involved in somehow and, and it does kind of affect people. Morrison doesn't give us a ton of that. I mean, I think, I think he could, we could have, we could have seen a little bit more of that in this, but he's so busy cramming everything into six issues that it, it, cause like if you, if you look at the, the recap I did for, um, five and six they're like he really is cutting back and forth between three different scenes like across three pages yeah. and so my my synopsis was like this happens and this happens and this happens and so it i think it was like a lot of big fit into six issues and i actually think that works against it in some cases because it minimizes moments that should be like oh hell yes moments because they only make up like a panel so, like, for instance, um, as we get into six, Barbara standing up and saying we all have superpowers is a panel in the upper right-hand corner of the page. That should be a splash page. Absolutely. That should be the splash at the end of, like, issue f- of, of part five or something. Or, like, it, it, it really should not be a panel. So, like, so that, that was one of the things I, I have a – a criticism of of how this is paced where you're trying to shove all these big moments into such a small space and it doesn't um and and it comes off as like you're rushed through it 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 feels it feels rushed or it feels like very very quick where you're not able to really savor a lot of what's going on because there's so much going on which i think we that was something we talked about in our previous one as well mm-hmm. because he uses that one character who can look through time and everything. Our man. I don't remember his name now. Yeah, yeah. To like face fast forward conversations. Like we already talked about mm-hmm. this. This is the yeah. Man. Uh, kind of a cheeky way to, to accelerate. Yeah. That. Yeah. In part six, we've got uh, Superman's in a bit of a yes. daze. I guess he's yeah. And Batman is trying to help John out. John can't really commute. I mean, he can communicate with him, but he's not really able to help Superman. So Batman's going to try to do it. Why do you think he removes his cowl in order to communicate with Superman? Because he's serious now. <laughs> the, okay. the hat's off. It's, okay. yeah, it's like, it's like when Stallone turns his hat around and over the top and he gets ready to arm wrestle that last guy. Yeah, it's serious now. No, I don't know. I think okay. also I think he's he's um he's he's calling him Clark. So maybe maybe yeah. it's just a symbolic gesture of um not appealing to Superman but appealing to the person he knows that Superman is, you know, mm-hmm. because this is post crisis. So I'm going to put this in very very simple terms. So don't at me. Clark's the real guy and Superman's the mask and in the other and and with Batman it's the other way around where like mm. Bruce feels more comfortable as Batman and but Bruce is the act. 
so he knows that Clark deep down is very human. So he's appealing to the humanity inside of Clark and the will and the, the fight and the fact that Clark really cares for everybody on, and you know, like, you know, he is appealing to the Clark in the way that Clark has compassion and everything in the same way that like when it was Luther, they were appealing to his ego because that's what drives him. So Mm -hmm. taking the mask off and I guess um, it gives us Howard Porter the chance to show like Bruce being all serious, but at the same time, it's like Bruce allowing the vulnerability of himself to come in and not be like, you know, I'm Batman, but like, you know, like the, the, the real Bruce Wayne, the, because I think just, and I'm pretty sure I'm, I hope I'm not misquoting Michael Bailey, but I believe Mike would say that the actual Clark Superman is like between those two, you know, the one who can kind of hang around on his parents' farm without having to put the Clark disguise on, but it also doesn't have to be the Superman. And this era of Bruce, or at least the, the era of Bruce that I remember from like maybe a few years before this, like pre nightfall, because that was like my when I really first came in, I've always thought is like the real person is Bruce in the cave with the bat suit on, but without the mask. Like you know, not putting on the full Batman act to scare the criminals, but not putting on the Playboy act. Like the that's where the real person lies between them. So he's that's what he's coming. He's got to I've got to get myself in that mindset. I'm going to get myself in Clark's head the same way. Yeah, I agree. I think that it it shows there's like. An intimacy almost between mm-hmm. the two. It's, you know, Bruce talking to Clark. And I think, if I recall correctly, Superman's having sort of repeated nightmares about not saving Krypton. And so, doesn't it also connect to Bruce, you know, being unable to save his parents? So, I think they're able, he's able to relate yes. to him on a, a, on a different level than just the heroic level. So, trying to talk someone down, you know, as if you would, you know, someone's on top of a building, you would talk to them in a different way. It's that word you're always using. <gasps> empathy. Empathy? Empathy. That's going to come up after yes, the break, too. Yes, I'll talk yes. about it. Um, well, speaking of Superman. Oh, did you have No, no. I was going to get into the next, uh, the, kind of the big finale here. Yeah. Well, I want, Superman saves the day mm-hmm. again. And I wondered if this is getting old because I feel like Superman's been saving the day each time you've come on. Or does it really ever get old? should does is that his right to always save the day it works i think because like we have this huge scene where the people of earth are like look he's saved us so many times that we are going to save him so they all kind of band together because they know he's in there so he they 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 clear the path for him to push the you know to push the button so to speak like for him to give the final blow but they, it is a huge world, literal worldwide effort. What I look at, though, and I don't know, and and I and I honestly don't know. Um, I, I read the Aztec series because Aztec had his own series for a while. It got canceled. I think after like I think it ran for like fourteen issues or something, or maybe even less. It might have been like nine. But I guess this was the end game because Grant Morrison created Aztec. Um, so you have that sacrifice, the the Vasquez Gorman sacrifice, and aliens. Um, one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. Um, and, but then you have the, of the self-destructing to buy him time, but you have a, and I know it's Morrison being Morrison. You literally have Deus Ex Machina in this story. (laughs) The gods literally show up or 
representation of God literally shows up on Earth to quell the war, and then the godlike being shows up to get the machine going that gives the people powers that saves the world. And I don't know whether or not to roll my eyes or to tip my hat to Grant Morrison on this. I don't know if I'm stupid if I tip my hat, because this obviously it was his intention all along, or if I'm supposed to be all like, oh, that's dumb. I, you know, it's a better comic fan than I am would probably tell to be able to tell you whether or not what the correct opinion on is that I actually think it's actually kind of clever knowing how metatextual Grant Morrison likes to get. And this is a pretty straightforward story. I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to incur the wrath of Michael Bailey, but after a while, I kind of want, you know, another hero to take it. And I guess in the previous story, it was more Billy Batson, right? Who actually came mm-hmm. out on top. But uh, it just always seems like Clark slash Superman's ready to sacrifice himself. And I guess, you know, that's just the nature of his character. But, you know, as a, because it's an ensemble book, I, I almost want multiple members to shine and, and have their chance to really come out on top. It, it wouldn't have been – it wouldn't have bothered – it doesn't bother me that he saves the day in the end, partially because he's Superman, but partially because he and Orion went in first – and the rest of the league was like, look, you were going to do it anyway. We're not going to stop you. So he was already in there. So it's not like all hope was lost and Superman finally came up with a way to save the day. I really do think it's the fact that, like, to me, it's the whole thing that that this moment is earned by all the previous stuff of all the heroes and all the people, like that great two-page splash of Wonder Woman flying into space where she's like Justice League Reserves onward and it's just all these normal people just attacking Mageddon. To me, that is what earns Superman. Like, they're almost like feeding Superman, you know? Mm. Like, you know, I, I know I know. he says, I, I do like the line, I really hate that lecturing tone, Bruce, but it's what I always need to it's always when I need to hear it most. And the thing he says right before he he finally breaks free is thousands are dying right now. Billions more will die in minutes. Save them, Superman, or God help me. Like, in other words, like he's talking about the armies of man. And it's just like all these people are inspired by you. And they, they without a second thought, they said, we're going to fight for this man who has helped us time and time again. And that is what pushes him over the edge to be like, you know, no, I'm back. And so I think it's a really, really earned uh, moment. But I do agree with you that you wouldn't, you would want somebody else saving the day. You don't want to rely on Superman all the time. But in this case, I, I think it's really appropriate. And it's and it's earned. Do you think that with this ensemble cast, were some able to get some highlights? And, and do you think that those characters deserve the highlights that they got? I don't know how much the Martian Manhunter really contributes to all this, except for the telepathy thing, because um, he's the he's the he, he unlocks the key. Um, I think Oracle actually has a nice enough role in my mind. I don't know that that's, but I'm gonna mm. I'm gonna I'm gonna push that to you because you're you're the you're the host here. This is who we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I think overall we get like we get some good Orion moments. I, I think you know um, with the main leaguers, it's 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 done pretty well. It would have been interesting to see like a this this. I don't think this could have been a crossover. 
I wouldn't have wanted to see this as a crossover because it would have just been too many crossover mm-hmm. issues. But like a Secret Files and Origins thing or or one of those specials where you get a bunch of side stories and vignettes that, you know, I think it would have been in a Secret Files and Origins that doesn't necessarily have an impact on the main story, but shows, you know, expanded scenes from some of the other heroes fighting or something like that. That would have been pretty cool. A couple yeah. of specials like that would have been pretty cool. I feel like Flash got a bit of a highlight, especially at the end of five, mm-hmm. beginning of six, when he has that the Speed Force yeah. personified helping him out, which that's one of my favorite pages, actually, is the end of five, just with him saying, I brought a friend. Yeah. He says. I think that's really well done. You've got Kyle, I think, getting some spotlight here and there, uh, gaining some confidence in what he needs to do, which it seems like it's not the first time that he's needed a confidence booster. It seems like that happened previously when we met as well. And I thought Aztec was going to get a little bit more because it seemed like he was able to commune with Mageddon on a deeper Mm -hmm. level, and so I thought he was going to get something, but he didn't as much. So it wasn't some highlights here and there, but they were were pretty spaced out, and there were, I feel like, so many characters. I mean, in my opinion, the new, what was it called? The new Injustice Gang got lost in the shuffle at one point. At one point, they're sort of gone, and it's just Mageddon. Yeah, well, that... Which I guess maybe that was... Yeah, because I think it was basically like Island got sent out into the fan the ghost zone the queen bee got taken they 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 beat the injustice gang as the the mini boss before the big boss <laughs> you know yeah, like yeah it's the boss that you think you've beaten the yeah, game and then you're like oh no there's luther luther's done um the dog you know attacked the blue island through the airlock prometheus got taken down by batman yeah. and then the queen bee got shuttled through a boom tube back to her home world so yeah they, they took out the injustice gang and then it was all right here comes mageddon well let's talk about it as okay. a whole i mean where does it lie for you uh in justice league stories do you think it's it was a overall well done story i do in the context of like like i said i have the entire run in trade or at least the original trade so maybe i'm missing a couple of things in there but um overall um i think it's a really cool ending to what is a really good run of justice league stories prior to this you had the it wasn't the Blahaha League anymore. You had a few years of the post Blahaha stuff, and by the time Morrison took over, it was like uh, Diana was leading it. It was like Nuclon and Obsidian, and 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 like it was it was just not from what I remember that era. The Justice League is pretty terrible, and so you have that post Zero Hour pre this era, and then you have like okay, let's bring back the Super Friends, basically. Um, and it really is we're going to constantly go big so when you constantly go big with stories you have to if you're this is going to be your big finale you have to go really big and i think he i think he succeeded i like i said i have some issues with some of the the really quick pacing i felt that there some of the some of the moments should have been a lot more you know i think aztec should have gotten a little bit more you know, just I, I know that I know that he was coming in from another series and another part of, you know, you have to go back through a bunch of other things. Um, you know, so there could have been a little more character beats, a little bit, just a tiny bit more, maybe a seven, maybe make the seven or eight. But overall, uh, when all is said and done, uh, I thought it was really, really good. 
Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. I think I liked it more than Crisis Times Five, to be honest. Yeah, I did too. And this was this was longer than that. Yeah. I thought, oh boy, better strap in there. But yeah, it was interesting um, with the Injustice Gang, and then leading to Mageddon and seeing different characters pop in and out. Yeah. I thought. Yeah, it, it was great to see an expanded team. And then at the very end, you've got almost the original Justice League. And I think Barbara Gordon's role was better mm-hmm. and larger than it was with Crisis on Side because I think that was, we talked about maybe she was not utilized as much as she could yeah. have in, in that story. But in this one, I felt like she was. We got to see her strength. We got to see her being preyed upon, you know, f- with her weaknesses and things like that. And um, we got some startling moments as well with Huntress being kicked off the team. So status quo's being shaken up, which is always interesting. So I thought that, yeah, it was a pretty solid story. But I agree with you about the about the pacing, and I think that's just a consistent issue that we've had with, with Morrison's mm-hmm. writing. Yeah, and it might have been the Do you think Would too. you have cut it or expanded I it? I think I would have expanded Banded it not a ton. This okay. doesn't need to be like twelve issues or anything like that. Yeah. Maybe an issue two more, just give a little bit more room to breathe with some of the elements. To be completely honest, like so, expand it a little bit more, or make that finale double sized or something. You know, like yeah, you know that that just for something that well, big. the finale was yeah. Oh, it was. It was, well, yeah, I guess you didn't have yeah, the thing. Yeah, okay. it was double sized. Okay. So maybe if they had a couple more double sized, or issues, or just like one more issue, there's something. Space. Yeah, just something. It just yeah. it just needed it, it. Some of the stuff needed to breathe a little bit more for my for my taste. What would you give this out of ten uh, giant eyeballs? <laughs> Nine. That's very generous of you. I think it's really. I think it's you know really. This is like the third or fourth time I've read it, and I and I it just it never. It feels like an epic movie type of thing. Like it really is. Just it. it so it, it has that feeling. By the way, that that ending um, reminded me of the last scene of Justice League Unlimited, which I know came much many years, a few years after this. But you know, at the very end, they all Where they're sort of they all fly off, toward yeah. the camera, and it's just it had that like you can hear the theme song. It had that feel to it yeah so so i just uh, that that's where i was like yeah nine out of ten because uh, you know i'm nitpicking at pacing and i'm some of the art is not my it's not particularly good in places but it's good in others and but overall it's it's like it's really a good story (laughs) yeah i'm gonna i'm not quite there but i'm gonna give it a pretty solid b with an 8.5 out of 10 Mm -hmm. giant eyeballs Okay. Well, now it's time for some listener feedback. Mail time. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. I just have one email. It's from Ian Prime. He says, I liked the way Dixon worked with Babs's flaws, crossing lines perhaps coming from association with the Suicide Squad, distrust of a government that uses such a team as Task Force X with Walter, whoa, with Waller in charge. 
Walter, and from her general wish to make the world better through her own control. The tension between Dinah and Babs is really plausible and helps to shape the emotional intensity of the growth of their relationship. I should have said that this is off the previous episode, episode 171, where I just was did. Was this a Birds of Prey number eight? Epi- okay. It's just, yeah, so it's about, uh, it's about Birds of Prey, not eight, nine through 12. Oh, okay. I think, yeah. Okay. 9, 10, 11, or 9 through 11, whatever the arc gotcha. was, yeah. So the tension between Dinah and Babs is really plausible and helps to shape the emotional intensity of the growth of their relationship. Oracle's ruthlessness, I think there's a sense that she's coming out of the kind of harshness of the killing joke and Suicide Squad. As for Detective Comics 1000, which I think just hit shelves actually with its bazillion different As comics, of this recording yesterday, yes. Okay. It's mostly standalone stories. I don't think you need to catch up. I haven't been buying the previous issues of Detective, but I'm very excited to have this one next to I, action, action Comics number I 1000 in my box. I did buy a copy today. Oh, <gasps> Tom, you are weak and I bought this. the – um, well, I, I had planned on doing this. It was my exception to the no, nothing really new. Oh, Tom, Tom. Because I was like – Okay. <laughs> look, until I sold it, I – Detective Comics was the – one bat title that I read consistently from 1990 when I started collecting it all the way up until about whenever I stopped reading Batman altogether. So I had like a, and at least a hundred issues or so straight. And then, so it's like, I always knew I was going to buy detective 1000. I bought the Bernie Wrightson seventies uh, cover because it looks oh. really cool. <laughs> it's a really okay. cool cover. <laughs> so I saw I Don yet, got the Bruce Tim version. Uh-huh. That's a cool cover too, but I. So, how many covers are there? Like seven or eight, I think. I saw like a bunch of them in no. my. I, I was, I was. I thought they were in the hundreds. Oh, I don't know. I, I was. I. You're asking the wrong person. I don't really pay attention to oh. these things. I just. I saw seven <laughs> or eight of them in my LCS today when I was. Oh, when I yeah. when I stopped to pick up my books and and um and I saw one cover and I'm like I don't really like and I then I saw like three or four other covers and I was like I didn't like the. I didn't like the Frank Miller cover because, uh, but that Bernie Wrightson cover was just, it was, it's gorgeous. I was like, I'm grabbing this, but I haven't read it yet though. Okay. Okay. And I don't have it and I haven't read it. So who knows? Uh, let's see here. Uh, so he would like it to be by his action comics number 1000 in his, in his box. And he's got a little smiley face emoticon. I personally am a big fan of Taylor Swift, though not of her most recent album. I think the song, this love is a great Tim and Stephanie shipper song and could also work for Dick and Babs after the very sad and frustrating nightwing annual. Yeah. Cause now Dick is Rick. I think with the newest Batgirl issue, I wasn't convinced that Babs could have talked Comorant down. So I don't think Jason is necessarily wrong in killing the villain. This was the issue that uh, episode you were on. Mm. It's a very interesting exploration of a tough situation, and I hope that we see Scott explore the ramifications of that difficulty in the future issues. Jason, knowing whether Babs' Batgirl is pretty interesting, I doubt it, but we shall have to see. Comment for Chris. I agree that everyone in Nightwing feels slightly out of character, but that's par for the course since Nightwing number 50, sadly. Okay, well, Tom and I are going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to just review Batgirl 85 or 33, depending on what you think of it. But first, it's Zias' Radio Hour featuring I Don't Care by Apocalyptica featuring Adam Gontier.
I try to make it through my life in my way. There's you. I try to make it through these lies. That's all I do. Just don't deny it. Just don't deny it. And deal with it. Yeah, deal with it. You try to break me. You wanna break me bit by bit. That's just part of it. Well, welcome back. Here we are. I was confused. I was confused because the end of 32 said next up 
the Batman Who Laughs. And I was reading through this and thought to myself, this is not a tie-in. This is connecting back to the same old Batgirl story. So the Batman Who Laughs is kind of in here, but I felt like I was misled at the end of that. But that's fine because I'm not reading the Batman Who Laughs, <laughs> so I would have been out of my depth anyway. So here we go. Batgirl number 33 or 85, Blowout. Writer Margaret Scott, artists on page 1 through 13 and 16 through 20, Elena Casagrande. And artists on pages 14 through 15, Scott Godlewski and colorist John Kalitz. Didn't we just have a John Kalitz way up above, too? I think so. Yeah. Just so you know, this takes place before the events of The Batman Who Laughs number three, in case you care. At Blackgate Prison, Barbara stares at an empty cell where James Gordon Jr. should be. James has been released and is part of a rigorous treatment program, and apparently it's worked because he's cured. Bab screams that this cannot be and puts any future deaths on the warden's hands. It's also election night in Gotham, and Babs is anywhere but where she should be. Jason wants an update on her investigation into Comorant and the pink-haired lady whose name I've forgotten, and I told myself I needed to look it up before we recorded, but I forgot. She, the one that basically needs to... Do you remember her name? Oh, no. I know who you're talking about, but I don't remember her name. <laughs> I, I was like, so be sure you go home and look up who this is. I can't remember her name. But basically the girl that gets on Babs all the time. So she tells Babs that she should be actually doing her job as social media coordinator because Alejo is about to actually cast her vote. As Batgirl, Babs interrogates various people as to the whereabouts of James Jr., including staff on the medical trial, a fellow trial member, and his parole officer. These interrogations get rough to say the least, but she pulls herself back from the edge, blaming her brother for the change in her character. She also believes that it's her brother who is behind the attempted assassinations of Alejo because he wants Blackgate to remain open. Finally, one of Bard's calls gets through to Babs, telling her to come to the campaign headquarters immediately because James Jr. is there. He was just passing through on his way to work when Jason pulled a gun on him. While Babs is ready to get into a fierce screaming match, James Sr. arrives to see why James stopped moving towards his destination. Babs feels, wait for it, betrayed that her father knew James was out but didn't tell her. He tries to defend James, saying that he has changed, but Babs continues to say that it is an impossibility and she refuses to talk to James Jr. Her father asks her to trust him. But she says the trust must already be gone if you have to ask for it. She takes the rest of the day off and understands if Alejo doesn't want her back if she ends up winning. James Sr. encourages James Jr. to follow Babs, but Babs quickly scales a building so she can get out of sight. And James Jr. shouts that, of course, Gordon's don't give up, which is the motto that's been running through Scott's run, and that that should count for something in a family as well. Later, he arrives at his grocery job, and we see a day in his glamorous life, which is actually pretty bad, and is probably true to it's probably true to real life. Unfortunately, I mean, I try to be respectful to my grocers, but that's not everybody. He returns to a state-issued apartment, and Batgirl is waiting for him. He explains that it's still hard for him to not hurt people, but the main thing that keeps him from doing it is wait for it, wait for it. It's the fact that he feels empathy. <laughs> Hallelujah, 
dialed up to 11 people, which is how everyone should feel empathy. He apologizes, but Batgirl hits him and says he doesn't just get to apologize after everything that he's done. Remember Black Mirror, he stabbed her in the legs with knives. He was supposed to remain in his cage as penance. He says that he'll allow her to kill him, but only if she does it as his sister, not the bat. Now, Barbara actually does remove the cowl, but she puts it back on and leaves. She says she will always be there to stop him, and James promises that she won't have to, but he has to hold on as an image of the Batman who laughs threatens over him. Next, terrible things come in threes. Okay, as I've been doing throughout these modern runs, I ask myself as well as my guests what favorite panels they might have in this particular issue. So, Tom... Do you have any particular favorite panels from this issue? I tried to give a favorite panel from both artists. So okay, for the well, they were for the there. first artist team whose name I can't remember. Casagrande. Yeah, Casagrande. Mine thing says page. So I think it's page four, the page six of the PDF, where she's looming over the hospital orderly this medical staff and it's a two panel sequence of like you just see her boots and her uh, shadow and the yeah. person's just kind of like on the floor with their hands up and then the next panel is she's like I don't have it he's always driven in by the police and she's got her hands up like please don't hit me I think that's a pretty the, the way the way that the facial expression on the please don't hit me is like this flinch I think that was really well done and then the other art team did the grocery store sequence and I don't know, I guess you'd have to ask Margaret Scott if that was added later or something. Like, you know, why? Yeah, why? why? Yeah. Um, the four-panel sequence of the customers just being awful. The art, I think, is, like, really good because you get – you have the old woman and James just kind of taking it while you have very just realistic-looking expressions from the three people and then – that really nice fourth panel where he's got his hand on her shoulder and he says, like I said, another glorious day of retail. She's like, yeah, see you tomorrow, kid. And it's just, it is empathetic. It's, it's support. And it's, I think it's a nicely drawn sequence. Yeah. So I think a lot of it, I'm going to be applauding the colorist on this. So I will say that the conversation, uh, the argument between father and daughter, I just like that the colors are reflected are reflective of the police car mm-hmm. lights the red, going yeah. off, so it goes between like red and blue. I, I do appreciate that. Well, I, and we we are going to talk about this, but when Barbara actually punches James in his apartment, I think that that's a really well done panel. It's twenty, maybe uh, page twenty mm-hmm. or so, and it's just I mean they're in the same tan color. There's red behind it, and then and blood spatter his glasses are going and then i'm always i'm just a sucker for silhouettes and this is again just a dangerous silhouette there but the next page at the bottom where she's actually is just this the background you've got her in silhouette and then removing the the mask which is pretty sinister but those would be my my favorite art pieces Mm -hmm. there yeah those are really good the shot of her standing over him is well done too yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of it, I think the this was a tough issue to do because of just all, all the conflict that's going on. And it's not normal superhero conflict mm-hmm. of fighting and things like that. But 
father-daughter issues. You've got James and her going at it and, and her against the world almost trying to track him down. So how do you capture that in art? And, and I think it was really well done. Yeah. Did you notice the change in artists with the, the 14 and 15? Not until you pointed it out. Okay. Because I, I, I must have blown through the creator credits and just started reading the issue. Um, and I, when I went back, I noticed it, but it's not like crazy jarring, you know, like, you know, where you go from like, I don't know this to like a Kurt Swan panel or something, you know, like, or a Jim Aparo panel or something, you know, somebody who has been, you know, working like years and years and years ago. And it's like a marked difference. It's, it's rather seamless. It's, it it doesn't really take me out of the story. I would agree. It's odd, Mm -hmm. especially since. Casa Grande did everything but two pages, and so you sort of wonder what happened. But yeah, it, it wasn't. I, I feel like it was. It was pretty seamless. I would agree with yeah. that. Well, for this issue, I, I want to go through the characters because I felt like, like I said, you know, there wasn't really a villain in this. I don't think you could potentially say, and it was more just character studies. And they're just. I just want to focus on the three big characters. I think that we have here. So we'll start with, of course, the main one, which is Barbara mm-hmm. Gordon. Wow. So when she is <laughs> trying to find James, uh, I use the word interrogate, and it 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 ramps up because the the medical staffer she's intimidating her. I think her hands are on the the fellow trial member, and then she has turned the parole officer upside down in a, in a bad esque yeah. move. So it very much it's almost like tricolon crescens, where it's like increasing towards the end. Do you feel like she went overboard? This might be you know a, a, a dumb question to ask, but do you think that she went overboard? Was she right in how she interrogated people? Should she have even been interrogating people? I think she went overboard. I think I don't know. If, I don't want to say it was justified, but it it's understandable <laughs> why she went overboard. Yeah. So I don't. I don't think it's. I don't want to say she was right in going overboard in the way she did, but I understand why, considering the history with James and and who he is. I agree that yeah, it was understandable. My eyes were getting wider and wider, especially when we got to the parole officer, which. Is more or less an officer of yeah. the law, and he's out there hanging, and you know, which is very similar to what Batman does. But Batman does that to criminals, and she's just—I thought, oh my gosh, what is going on? But I'm glad she snapped out of it, which was him saying, you know, please don't hurt me, and and she realizes this, but she she blames it. She blames it on James that you know he has pushed her to this point. Do you think it's right that she blamed him, or is it something that's actually within her, or could it be maybe a deeper influence of Batman on her? Is it really James's fault that she went to this degree? I think I wrote a combination of both her and James. Um, I think he shares some of the blames because this obviously was traumatic for her and he caused the trauma or was she's reacting to something that he did. But at the same time, she's also responsible for, for her actions here. I don't know about Batman. That's I'm cause I'm not, I'm not up on this iteration of Batman, so I, I can't tell you whether or not. Well, in the past, I mean, isn't I mean everything she was doing seemed like Batman. Like if you put Batman in there, that's absolutely what he'd been. Yeah, doing. yeah, yeah. So maybe it is a little bit of an influence of Batman. Like she feels that she she snaps into that mode when she gets rage like this because she's seen it be effective. Yeah, 
I want, you know, I think it's too easy to blame James. And I should even, well, when we get to James, I'll ask you what you think of him because I don't think we've ever talked about James Jr. before. I think it's easy for her to to blame him and, mm-hmm. and sort of the root of of all her issues and everything. And yes, he's an absolutely a, you know a terrible person and everything. But she's the one doing you know all of this stuff. He's not there provoking her. It's just his like absence from the jail cell where she believes him to yeah. be. But that you know, if I say it's not James's fault, I think then it makes me uncomfortable because goodness. There is there is something that's darker within Barbara that would push her to this, and I think it goes back to an issue that I think Carolyn Coco was on with me when we did that, and this conversation between the two of them when she when he helped in quotation marks helped her out with the case, and he was pointing out to her that you have the same darkness that I have. You know, you were watching the same horror and detective shows that I was and, and looking at everything. So, you know, it's, if we say that it's not James, then I think you sort of look at the root and, and gosh, what is there? Is there something dark within Barbara that she would do this? Or is it just like a one-time thing? And I'm, kind of trying to, to work through that because I think only when pushed to extreme situations is she like this and, and we've seen her do this in previous stories as well it's, it's not yeah. like it's happening all the time but uh, you just kind of wonder about yeah like her limitations and, and how far can she be pushed yeah I agree with that especially since he's not trying to push her buttons here so it is her Right. It is set up as her overreacting to to this, and, yeah. and even with her father trying to calm her down. Mm-hmm. And the only person I mean that would and deserves not even the right word, but you know, would even should be treated like that uh, would have been the fellow trial member, because then you could assume that that person was as evil or doing bad things like James was. But the other two people, like I said, officer of the law, and then you've got someone who's just on medical staff. And so those people should not have been treated that way at all. So it's just, yeah, it's very interesting. But I guess it just points to what her relationship with James is Mm -hmm. like when she went to that um, degree. Yeah. So at the end, James, I mean, he apologizes and uh, she's not going to forgive him. And uh, she says that, you know, it's it's not enough, basically. Um, is it okay for her not to forgive James? Yeah, I don't think he's... I think she feels that he needs to earn it more than just what's going on here. And I think she is right to be skeptical of this turnaround. Yeah, I agree that, you know, she's skeptical. Skept, whoa, skeptical. Skeptical. I think, yeah. Whew. I think she has every right to be, as you said. It's unfortunate if only because in her not forgiving him like she didn't just say i I, i'm not going to forgive you but she had to hit him as well and i felt like again i don't care for james as a character but i felt like that was too much Mm -hmm. because like instead of just using words to say i don't forgive you she decided to be the more violent of the two and it's it's like this weird role reversal where he's all of a sudden like this meek and mild creature and she's this violent creature and he wasn't doing again he's not provoking her and she takes that out on him so i'm i don't know like barbara for me in this particular issue is has like a negative character and i'm not saying that margaret scott wrote it poorly but i think that 
it just like because this might be actually how she would react to it but it just it it shines a dark and and unfortunate light upon barbara Mm -hmm. yeah i was wondering how how deliberate that is too i guess we'll have to see in future issues because i'm not a huge fan of james as a character either in fact i wrote i wrote down like oh this again you know just (laughs) yes yeah Um, although i think he was written better than the other times i've seen him or at least this was slightly more interesting to me because of the whole i've turned things around note that they're that they're doing Mm -hmm. so then the last part of course of you know her character is the fact that barbara does take off her mask Mm -hmm. Almost in... And that Batman fires her. Bane. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yes, thank you for that. Yeah, that's true, because she's about to kill mm-hmm. him. Because he says, you know, if you're going to kill me, kill me, but kill me as my sister as Batgirl. So, oh, my goodness. Is there a moment? Do you think she's actually considering it? Was the mask lifting off like that consideration in that moment? What do you think about that whole thing happening? I don't know if I like that panel. So I'm on that page right now, and the top of it is him um, kind of wiping his – he's got his glasses off, and he looks like he's kind of wiping away his bloody nose, and then she's looming over him. Props to the art team, by the way, for not giving her gargantuan breasts. Um, yes, it just It's just like – I don't think she's very tall. I don't know what her height and weight is, but she strikes me as the type of person who is athletic and is wearing the type of compression bra – that kind of mashes your breasts against you anyway. And, you know, I, and, you know, having seen a lot of women athletes over the years, you know, there, I mean, there are, there are women who are, who are small in stature, but do have, you know, because of whatever genetics they, they do have, you know, large chests, but the, the tendency to go like the Ed Bennis route of, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like is, uh, is strong. Yeah, sure. And here you have an art team that's like, no, she's, she is athletic. You know, she's not unattractive. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, so the, and, and you see the outline, at least in the scene, you see the outline of the rest, but they're not like, you know, heaving forth in the way that like huntresses were in the JLA issues and things like that. So just, just, I just wanted to point that out because I made a note. I, I, as I was flipping through this, I was like, "Yeah, they, they just draw her anatomically, just or body wise, just like it looks n- normal. You know, it looks like somebody that you would see." And they did that in the Burnside run too. I thought that I thought granted it was more cartoony, but at the same time, I thought that it was just like everything looked proportional. She looked like a real person, and I, I, I really did appreciate mm-hmm. that. Um, so below that, you have this really good overhead shot of her just looking down at him. It's like a horizontal panel, and I think it's a really well-composed panel because she's got the mask on. And then I like the panel in the bottom right-hand corner where she says, maybe you really are cursed, but it doesn't mean I have to forgive you, and she's facing away from him. I don't think we needed the thing of her taking it off. Maybe another panel of her looking back at him or something. Like, just another panel of her considering it for a moment. And then doing the thing where I'm going to leave, like maybe the maybe the taking the mask off was too much to. I think it it just it it was too fine a point to put on it. And it pushes her like really far. Yeah. Like it it goes from considering to like you're practically one step towards throwing your batarang into his head. It it gives us too much. Like 
let us have that ambiguity of whether or not, like, you know, ha- give us give us another glance, give us another look or something that suggests she's thinking about it, but we're not 100% sure. Mm, and here yeah. she's clearly thinking about it. Yeah, so that's, yeah, it just goes to my, you know, about Barbara's character in this particular issue. Mm-hmm. How far is, is too far, and has he pushed her there? Do you think, is I mean, is James on the level with Joker? I mean, because the only other person that I could see pushing her to this amount, you know, picking up a gun, something like that, would be the Joker. And we've we've seen it done. So it, do you think he's on that level, or have we put him on that level and he doesn't deserve to be? I think he's they're trying to put him on that level. Because she needs okay. the, maybe maybe somebody decided she needs a Joker. I don't know if it was Margaret Scott or, okay. or Gail Simone or you know whomever wrote him prior. I don't know. I wouldn't put him on the same level as the Joker. I, I just don't. I don't know. If she again. I don't like the character very much. So so I'm gonna yeah. kind of I'm gonna kind of punt this back to you because I, I don't I don't really I'm a little more ambivalent about sure. it. Yeah, I you know, Black Mirror I enjoyed, even though it's, like, gruesome. The Gail Simone, James Jr., I did not like, and then he's brought back again. You know, he repeatedly comes back. I think this has been the best that he's been written since Black Mirror, but I don't, I don't think that he is on the... And I don't like Joker either, so we've got an issue here. But I don't think that he's on that level. They're both personal obstacles and, and personal nemeses for for Barbara, but you know, between one or the other. And then, you know, you know, if I were to choose my two, you'd have I guess Joker well, no, actually, you'd have Killer Moth and then potentially Joker and Oracle if you do like Batgirl and then Barbara Gordon and yeah. Oracle, that sort of thing. But James, I don't think really. I, I think the reason why they like it is it's this personal thing. And so they just want to beef him up and maybe create this new arch nemesis for, for Barbara. Yeah, possibly. In this, in this era. Yeah. I think that's – it seems like that's the intent. I, I agree with you. Well, let's move on to James. So we've both discussed that we, we don't care for him. Have you read Black Mirror by any no. chance? By Scott Snyder? Okay, I just wondered. Okay. Do you think that James is redeemable? Has he actually changed? Oh, I've seen stories like this, and it always turns out that he's either faking or he's being controlled, and he goes back to his old ways, or he ends up sacrificing himself because of whatever is going on. So I don't think that I think he's probably redeemable because it's very possible yeah. that anybody is redeemable. Except for Shaq. Yeah. Because um, he is redeemable. <laughs> but I, I just, it's yeah. right in the name. Um, but I think that, you know, any anybody like this could, there, there's a shot at redemption or there's something inside yeah. of them. Has he changed? I don't know. Uh, there's something else at work here um, because I've read too many stories like this. Yeah. That there'd be no drama in it if he, yeah. if he had yeah. changed. And I don't, I haven't been reading the Batman who lasts, right. and I think he's in current continuity and things like that. So I don't know what's happening over there and, mm-hmm. and what the ominous image is at the end of this issue. So, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, there's that potential of being redeemed. I mean, it, it, it was all because he was thrown off the bridge by Two-Face and Batman. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, has he changed? I, I think he's changed temporarily, but I feel like he might change back. So, and, and Barbara's on the on the lookout. 
And so empathy, we find out, equals pain for James. And I wondered if, and we've talked about this a little bit, uh, maybe off air, I suppose, with Raven. Do you think, does this send some sort of message at all, or am I reading into it? that the fact? I mean, it doesn't even use the word empathy. It makes empathy sound so that, bad for you. Yeah, like I, I understand yep. where he where he might make the connection because he's never felt it before because he was essentially like sociopathic, so he never really had that feeling. And to him, it's obvious that the most obvious way to be empathetic to a person is to understand their pain in that way. I know I'm simplifying mm-hmm. it, but I, I, I th- empathy to me is a positive emotional yeah. response to something. Um, yes, it could be a response to somebody else's pain, or yes, it could be a sharing of that, but it could also be you could have joy in empathy. You know, you can you can feel empathy for the joy somebody else is feeling because I don't know, they just had a kid and <laughs> you're a father or mother and you know that feeling and you can share that's empathy too. So so I think it's misguided on his part, but it's understandable considering who he is. Yeah, because I guess that's the reason why he killed is he had mm-hmm. empathy. Yeah. So now he's he's having to yeah yeah. I just wondered. Oh my gosh, you know it it hurts to feel other people's pain and and I think that's yeah that's the the scary mm-hmm. thing about you know relating to other people is if you don't want to reach out to do that because you're like oh gosh I don't want to feel their pain you know I I want them to feel better but I don't want to feel what they're feeling so that is the that's the thin line yeah. right there and they don't even use the word empathy you know I was the one to read in there that's basically, basically what it is what yeah that that's what he's doing yeah, yeah. So then we get into James Senior, and this was this was hard. Is that that was a hard scene for me to read? It's already been you've been on when they've been having some conflict, anyways, yeah. with the whole Alejo camp and and not necessarily being on the side of law enforcement and Barbara's working there and everything. But Jim here, he keeps James's release from Barbara. He believes that James has been cured and 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 trusts him and. Oh, man. So I guess my main question here is, do you think that the father was in the right to keep the daughter in the dark? No. She's an adult. You tell her. <laughs> you also like you also say, oh, I am. You tell her. You also set the boundaries, <laughs> whether it is as her father or as the commissioner of the police department. Yeah, no. You should have said something. Yeah. I think, you know, he wanted to protect her, but I think he doesn't because that was way worse finding out, finding James there randomly. And she could have been like emotionally prepared for it. And she may not have gone off and potentially hurt all of those people if he had told her. Yeah. She wouldn't have been interrogating everything. So I, I don't want to say the root cause is his secrets, but I, I think that he, that was, that was poor. I also, was upset when he said James go after her. That's like the she doesn't want James to go after her. Why on earth? What are you doing? It just seems like a complete breakdown of this father daughter relationship. Yeah. So I'm concerned. Yeah. 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 Whew, man. Okay. Do you have any other thoughts or issues you want to bring up? With no, I think I covered everything. All the notes that I had scribbled down. Okay. Well, what would you give this out of ten bats? Probably about an eight. Like a solid B, yeah. So this is one of those. I think I've done this maybe once before, and um, so it's not. It may make sense. It may not make sense. In my mind, it makes sense. <laughs> I'm going to also give it an eight. I think that it's 
like well thought out and well executed. Like it's strongly written, but I don't like it. I don't like sort of the implications that it has. Uh, the darkness of Barbara's character, the breakdown of the father-daughter. Uh, not necessarily saying that it can't, like it's an impossibility to go in that direction, but it's just, it's hard to read. It's hard to read, and I think it brings up really deep and also dark questions mm-hmm. of, you know, Barbara's nature and, and her character and everything. So it's it's one of those that I might, you know, I have to keep going back to and, and read and, and figure out a little bit more. And this is just one moment in time. So I'm interested to see where her character goes from here, where the dynamic, the father-daughter dynamic, the sister-brother dynamic goes. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, now on to Chris's cornucopia of curiosities. Uh, That's like your favorite baseball team not being already 30 games back out of first place and counting the days to free comic book day. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, bad fans. Welcome once again to the Chris's Cornucopia of Curiosity segment. Thank you very much for downloading, and as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. Today, I'm looking at Batman Adventures number 17, cover dated February 1994, and Nightwing number 58, dated May 2019. Batman Adventures number 17 was originally cover priced at $1.50. We have the usual team of Kelly Puckett as the writer, Mike Parabek was the penciler, Rick Burchett was the inker, and Rick Taylor was the colorist. The Batman was created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. This work is reprinted in The Batman Adventures Volume 2 and appears to be available on Comixology. Our story was entitled The Tangled Web, Act 1, Into the Shadows. At night, in a wooded area outside a base of Ra's Ghouls, Batman attacks and captures the totally garbed form of Edward Cordero, a demon Ra's al Ghul operative, and takes his outer clothing. Batman has now clothed himself as the operative and infiltrated himself among the others and notes that Ra's has delayed his current operation, presumably decimating a sizable portion of the globe's planet, restoring ecological balance. Meanwhile, Raish tells another operative he's aware of the delay and he himself has made certain that Batman will appear. Act 2. New World Order An operative named Asquinth tells Raish a delay in plans was due to a week-long holiday feast in a remote desert region. Batman's transmission within the Gotham compound is detected, and his garbed form is captured just after he and other operatives overpower and take over a transmission station. Meanwhile, Raish and his other minions have set up a desert base. A dark-robed Bedouin offers his combat services, but Raish declines, thinking it will not be necessary. At a satellite console, Raish remotely tells Batman back in Gotham that he will blow up the Arctic region, and the ensuing floods will wipe out billions, but he will keep Batman alive. Act 3. What doth it profit in a man? Batman takes off the rest of his operative garb, and it turns out it's really Robin. And at that very moment, the black-robed Bedouin reveals himself to be Batman and has a sword at Raish's throat from behind. Raish orders his men to lower their guns on Robin. Asquith tries to get the explosion off, but fails. Minions attack Batman, Raish gets on a plane, and Batman's attempt to catch Raish's plane by horseback before it takes off just falls short. Back in a different base, Raish contemplates what might have been and wonders if the detective is thinking the same. The end. Well been a while since I've seen Rayshot Ghoul take on Batman. Uh, as you would expect, a good story with scope, all told in a single issue. This was a great, great battle of wits, in my opinion. I thought it was fine artwork from cover to cover, and I really, really dug the artwork on this. You know, it, it there were some real good panels with uh, Rayshot's 
facial expressions intertwining with this. On the cover, we had a dark, shadowy Batman on horseback. This was really, really good classic material, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Not much more to say about it, and I am going to rate this 9 out of 10 bats for Batman Adventures number 17. Now for everyone's favorite segment within a segment, Nightwatch. This is where I take a look at the current title from a shipper's perspective. In Nightwing number 58, the Nightwing crew thwarts a mass bombing plot from the Joker's daughter, but she gets away. The issue concludes with Dick er, Rick Grayson giving Barbara Gordon a cab ride back to the airport. During the ride, Barbara apologizes to Rick for not giving him a fair shake with his new adopted identity and that she's proud of him. Rick tells her that means a lot, and they drive off into the night. Next, Old Flames. Okay, it should be noted that Rick was en route to CB before Barbara flagged him down. But if this is a rebuild or a fresh start of a relationship with Barbara, well, at least it's a start. However, they are friends only. I guess we'll have to wait and watch. I did have a side comment. It's unclear what Barbara's destination was by plane. I thought she'd be heading back to Gotham, but if so, I was under the impression that Bloodhaven and Gotham were somewhat in close proximity to each other, and that it wouldn't require a trip by air. At any rate, I will give this a lukewarm, repeat, lukewarm, shipper alert. This concludes this edition of Nightwatch. I did get some nice feedback on the segments I did recently, and they were from Laurel, and she can be found on Twitter at MountainFlower1. Well, thanks very much, Laurel, for writing in, and let's go over your comments. First up, with respect to Batman Adventures number 15, this was the issue that focused on Commissioner Gordon's attempt to rescue an undercover cop. You said the following, I think it was nice to have Jim Gordon not only in control, but giving his orders to Batman. I like that we get Gordon's point of view in the dialogue boxes. Nice to flesh out the character and show he's an equal partner in crime fighting. Laurel, I agree. You know, it really was cool just to see him on their own level. In fact, Jim wanting to play it because he felt responsible. So I, I really like that uh, he was calling the shots here in this. Now, granted, Batman did have a huge hand with the ultimate thing with Rupert Thorne, but this was really, really good Jim Gordon depiction here, and I really enjoyed seeing that. And this was one of the hallmarks of the title, focusing on the supporting cast. Next up, with respect to the Batman Adventures number 16, now this was last episode, which we covered with the Joker. Laurel, you said the following, This issue is not a favorite of mine. I don't like the, quote, capture the comic book writer, unquote, idea, and the story is too much of a farce for me. I was surprised you gave it a nine, but the art was certainly good. Yeah, Laurel, I I, I can kind of see that. I, I did... I, I had more so of an issue with the way Batman was captured as opposed to maybe necessarily with capturing the comic book writer. I, I think Joker arguably has a bit of an ego, and this sort of tended to be something of a showcase for the creative team of Batman Adventures themselves, all having cameos. So I guess perhaps maybe I'll let a few things slide, but I do take your points highly in consideration, and I do think you make some good ones here, and to each his own with respect to ideas with respect to story. Uh, a farce? Yeah, I could see that. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I just, it just I guess it hit me at the right way, you know, with, with the time where I gave it a, a pretty high score with respect to a 9 on that. But, you know, I, I do like the classic Batman versus Joker stories. So, maybe not the best one. In hindsight, maybe I, I could maybe give it an 8. But this one just hit me at the right time, and I thought it was a good matchup. I did sort of like the uh, Joker's own comic book motif, if you will. Something a little different, you know, reminiscent of him trying to trademark fish back in the old detective comic days of the 70s. So, thank you. I, I really appreciate those comments. And 
having a bit of foreshadowing, look at you. You've already chimed in with respect to the <laughs> issue I covered just now. With respect to this one, you said, speaking of the art, Batman Adventures number 17 was beautiful. Nice clean lines, good coloring, I concur. You continue to say, also, I thought this was a clever way to handle the Ra's al story. Everybody is doing the double bluff, but the writing and art played fair with the audience. The clues were there. Love that Bedouins recognized and feared the swordsmanship of Batman and left the fight. That's a point I didn't cover. Thank you very much. I appreciate you embellishing that, and that that really helped out uh, my podcast here. You continue to say, Was nice a change from, quote, everybody pile on Batman? There is one plot hole. Why did the satellite blow up? Despite that, this is a fun issue. Yeah, that's a good point, too, and that's something I kind of overlooked and glossed over with the story recap. Uh, Asquith does press a button, and he tries to put things into motion with respect to that, but it's not really clear how this failed and why the satellite blew up. It's just this one one-off panel, and it's not really elaborated on. Uh, yeah, but I agree, this is a fun issue, and I wonder what you would rate it from a scale to 1 to 10. You'll have to let me know. And I want to thank you, Laurel, for chiming in. Listeners... I do want to mention, please be sure to check out Laurel on both the Birds of Prey podcast and the Batgirl Huntress podcast, where she offers excellent story recaps and very, very keen insights. Now, if you'd like to leave me any feedback for now, you can reach me on Twitter at B2 on Batbooks or on the Batman Universe website on the Batgirl to Oracle feed. I've had some email problems of late, which I'm trying to rectify, so I'm going to give out the address on our next segment. Thank you very much. Listeners, please be sure to check out Stella on the Required Reading Podcast. I'd like to give a shout-out to the Sutherlands. Be sure to check out Warlord Worlds, Trigger Talk, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Sensational Sleuths, Fantastic Fantasies, and Convention Correspondence. As I said, you can find me on Twitter at BTO and Batbooks, BTO as in Batgirl to Oracle, and Batbooks for, as in Batbooks for Beginners. That's another podcast that I can be found on where I co-host with Jerry Green, where we examine and review trade paperbacks and collected material of Batman or related characters. You can find us talking about independent comics and whatnot on the Professor Frenzy Show. Please try that podcast. You can also find me on Trust Your Cape. That's a new podcast. It's a role-playing game podcast, and the feed on that is Gal Walks Into a Comic Shop. Please feel free to leave any comments for myself or on this segment again on the TB website. Consider leaving us a good review over on iTunes. If you'd like to lend your support to the Batman Universe website that has news, articles, editorials, and a fine family of podcasts, you can make a donation on Patreon or a one-time donation by PayPal by following the links on the Batman Universe website homepage. Hey, thanks very much for your support. What wily villain will strike in Batman Adventures number 19? What image is Batman suddenly afraid of? Can Batman possibly recover from the damage to his psyche? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these scary, scandalous, screechy schemes will be scholarly schooled next time. Same Batstella feed, same Batstella site. Thanks, Chris. Oh, we're almost done. Uh We've got my anime watch list. First up is, let's try to pronounce this here, Tsukika Kirei. Or, as the moon so beautiful, 12 episodes, 2017 was the air date. With the new school year comes a new crowd of classmates, and for their final year of junior high, which is like kind of middle school, it's ninth grade, aspiring writer Kataru Azumi and track team member Akane Mizuno end up in the same class. Though initially complete strangers, a few chance encounters stir an innocent desire within their hearts. A yearning gaze, a fluttering heart... (laughs) 
<laughs> it's like shippers. Uh, the hallmarks of young love slip into their lives as fate brings their paths to a cross. However, their love is patient and love is kind. What on earth? They're like Bible here. <laughs> However, though love is patient and love is kind. Uh, I was not prepared for that from anime. my anime watch list. Kotaru and Akane discover it is not always straightforward. Despite the comfort they find in each other's company, heartache and anxiety come hand in hand with pursuing the feelings in their hearts. With the uncertainty of how the other truly feels, as well as the competing affections of those around them, the road ahead is unclear. Even so, under the shining light of a beautiful moon, Kotaru gathers his courage to ask Akane a single question, one that forever changes their quiet relationship. I like school and relationship. The, the, those are my two little ones that I like to watch for anime. These are one of the frustrating ones because you're like, clearly he likes you. What are you doing? Or you know, but they're both shy, so they, it's just this long, long little slow burn there. But uh, it was very cute at the end. And the last episode, um, despite all of that build up and will they, won't they situation, like really leads to a, a nice happy ending. So it's all worthwhile. And I think I only watched it. I th- I watched it with subtitles. There might be a dub. I can't recall. Oh, maybe there is. Yes. Okay. And then the and I would say new viewer anime, you know, approved because it wasn't weird or anything. So I think you can do it. And then I recently went to a Fathom event. It's uh, of a movie called Made in Abyss: Journey's Dawn, and it's movie number one in a compilation of the series Made in Abyss. So sometimes. Anime. I don't know if it has to be extremely popular, but sometimes they'll make movies that'll sort of cut down the series. And there are two of them. I don't know when the second one's going to come out. So this was 2019. The Abyss, a gaping chasm stretching down into the depths of the earth filled with mysterious creatures and relics from a time-long past. How did it come to be? What lies at the bottom? Countless brave individuals known as divers have sought to solve these mysteries of the abyss, fearlessly descending into its darkest realms. The best and bravest of the divers, the White Whistles, are hailed as legends by those who remain on the surface. Rico, daughter of the missing White Whistle, I want to say White Walker, which is Game of Thrones. White Whistle, Liza the Annihilator, aspires to become like her mother and explore the furthest reaches of the abyss. However, just a novice Red Whistle herself, she's only permitted to roam its most upper layer. Even so, Rico has a chance to encounter, has a chance encounter with a mysterious robot with the appearance of an ordinary young boy. She comes to name him Reg, and he has no recollection of the events preceding his discovery. Certain that the technology to create Reg must come from deep within the abyss, the two decide to venture forth into the chasm to recover his memories and see the bottom of the great pit with their own eyes. However, they know not of the harsh reality that is the true existence of the abyss. I would say that this is sort of sci-fi-esque. Yeah, so part one, I kind of wonder what will happen in part two two and i saw this dubbed and there is a japanese with english subtitles so there are my two okay well now finally on to the thing that tom looks forward to the most (laughs) and one of the last times tom won't be able to do this very much very often much often after this so tom give us your literature recommendation i'm just looking at um I, I'm currently in the middle of a very long novel, so um, oh. well, not in the middle. I have about maybe hundred, two hundred pages left. But uh, I can I can tell you a couple of things I've re- I've read uh, in and have started in in recent in recent months. 
because of school I'm doing or work, I've read Macbeth and I'm in the middle or I just started Romeo and Juliet again. So, uh, but two, two things I can recommend, um, one of which you may have to get in the epic collection and not the essential because the essentials are out of print. Wow. But I read all of the essential classic X-Men volume three by Roy Thomas, Dennis O'Neill and a number of other people. Uh, this is the last of the three essential volumes collecting the original X-Men before giant size X-Men number one. Uh, so this is uh, now the, the original X Men run. I've so now I've, now I've read the whole thing because I read Essential One and Two uh, from the Lee Kirby stuff all the way up to this. It is plodding in places. It really did improve toward the end. Um, I felt like Roy Thomas had a little bit more kind of wheels under him, a little bit more. The art improved. Neil Adams did a number of issues that were really really good, um, and I was a little more engaged. Uh, with what was going on with uh, with the different, um, you know, with the introduction of people like Havoc and, um, and 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 such, so it was it was pretty solid. It gives you an idea of of kind of like why the X Men were more or less canceled in a sense. Um, there's some good. Uh, they collect all the Amazing Adventures issues that featured uh, the Beast. Because he had some solo stuff between those eras, there are a couple of um, guest spots and issues of like the Avengers and Amazing Spider-Man that are also collected. So it's a pretty solid collection of late '60s, early '70s um, X-Men stuff. I also I checked this out at the library: Wonder Woman, the True Amazon by Jill Thompson. This is a hardcover oh. that came out a couple of years ago, or last year. A comic or a it was novel? a graphic novel. Oh, that okay. is retelling her origin. Uh, Jill Thompson, I remember from all the way back in the early 90s when she was the penciler on Wonder Woman, um, right around 1990. Um, and then she did a number of issues of like Sandman and she's done other stuff. Uh, this is actually pretty good. It's, 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 I don't want to give away too much of how she changes Wonder Woman's origin for this and the, the new wrinkles she throws in, but they're, they were very satisfying. I liked it more than uh, Wonder Woman Earth 1 which was Grant Morrison and Yannick Paquette, I think. Um, I didn't really care for that, but, um, but I, I did enjoy this. It was, it was, it was well done. It reads really quickly because it reads almost like a storybook in the way that there's narration and, and everything. Um, it, it follows some of the same beats as we are used to in the Wonder Woman origin birth and play the the cha- challenges and things like that and life among the, the, the Amazons and stuff. So, um, but uh, I'm hoping that there's a sequel because it does seem to set up a sequel. So uh, I have just started just to give me myself a break uh, intermittently between chapters um, or, or re- of, of my current uh, required reading uh, a book I got for Christmas called, and if I could, it's, caught up in my headphone thing uh don't you forget about me the contemporary writers on the films of john hughes so it is essays uh this was published in it's published a few years ago it was on my amazon wish list for like the longest time yeah it was published in like 2007 so it's about 10 years old but it was a um it's just different essays analyzing and just and discussing or, or sharing memories about about john hughes films and i love 80s teen movies. I love the John Hughes movies. The Breakfast Club is my favorite movie of all time. So, um, and I'm only about three or four pages deep. uh, Sorry, three or four essays deep. It's a fun book, and uh, and it's just about. It's basically if you like stuff like you know Chuck Klosterman and 
um, or, or other other people writing or like you read stuff on the AV club where people are analyzing like, you know, their personal reactions or doing some sociological an- analysis of particular movies and things like that. Um, this is up your alley. And I just I, I've enjoyed it so far. So and I, for the first time in many, many years, got to go to a festival with a book event. Um, and uh-huh. I, I may have mentioned, I know I mentioned this on an upcoming episode of required reading that we've already recorded. Um, I may have mentioned it on a previous Batgirl Oracle because the last time, one of the last times I was on, I know I met a couple of recommendations, but the author Grady Hendricks was doing a, uh, reading, uh, or a discussion of his book, Paperbacks from Hell, which is this retrospective of the horror genre through the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And he just went, he had this slideshow, and it was, he went title, genre through genre, subgenre, title by title, premise by premise. It was absolutely hilarious. Uh, he signed a couple of my books. Um, so I would recommend um, any of his books. Uh, he's got, um, Paperbacks from Hell is this this great, wonderfully illustrated retrospective of, of cheap horror novels and 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 uh, you know the horror genre as a whole. Um, then he has three horror novels. Uh, the one I haven't read is called We Sold Our Souls, which I believe is about a rock band. I have it on my Kindle. I just haven't gotten to it yet. The other two are My Best Friend's Exorcism, which is I, I probably I think I mentioned this last time. Yeah, yeah My Best yeah. Friend's Exorcism and Horror Store. And he was it was just it was such a fun night. I'm so glad I went. I had a really really good time. I'm so glad. Yeah. So that was last okay, week. I, think. I just have. Oh, yeah. I think it was. I remember I seen a picture mm-hmm. on your Instagram. Well, I just have three. One of them is, or the first is, Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine by Gail Honeyman. Meet Eleanor Oliphant. She struggles with appropriate social skills and tends to say exactly what she's thinking. Nothing is missing in her carefully timetabled life of avoiding societal interactions where weekends are punctuated by frozen pizza, vodka, and phone chats with mommy. But everything changes when Eleanor meets Raymond, the bumbling and deeply unhygienic IT guy from her office. When she and Raymond together save Sammy, an elderly gentleman who has fallen on the sidewalk, the three become the kind of friends who rescue one another from the lives of isolation they have each been living. And it is Raymond's big heart that will ultimately help Eleanor find the way to repair her own profoundly damaged one. This was the, now Reese Witherspoon, I guess, is on the same level as Oprah because she's got her own little book. Mm-hmm. So this is um, <laughs> this is one of Reese Witherspoon's recommendations, and I just thought, oh, you know, it's people like it, so let me give it a shot. It actually was uh, it was fun, funny, sad, and uh, slightly disturbing. And then at the end, there's a there's a bit of a twist. So there you go. Now nothing is as disturbing or Tom. I think I think I poked you and said you need to read the, unless I did that. To, no, I think I did this to you. Educated. On, yeah, you did poke on, me. On, good, okay. <laughs> Whatever it's called on Goodreads. Yes. So I was like, Tom, read I, I this. saw that. I saw that. I've okay. heard of this, so but, educated. but I, haven't, I haven't picked that up. Yes. Yet. Okay. A memoir by Tara Westover. 
Born to survivalists in the mountains of Idaho, Tara Westover was 17 the first time she set foot in a classroom. Her family was so isolated from mainstream society that there was no one to ensure the children received an education and no one to intervene when one of Tara's older brothers became violent. When another brother got himself into college, Tara decided to try a new kind of life. Her quest for knowledge transformed her, taking her over oceans and across continents to Harvard and to Cambridge University. Only then would she wonder if she'd traveled too far, if there was still a way home. I won't, you know, spoil anything since Tom has yet to read it, but I think it's it's uh, gaining notoriety. I think people have recognized it's popular. I actually mm-hmm. read an old, like from the fall in Entertainment Weekly, and I noticed that it was touted there on one of their things of like, make a movie into this. So if you've read Glass Castle, it's sort of similar to that. So just be prepared for neglect and abuse. Um, the things, it's different though. I feel like the tone in Glass Castle is different than the tone here. Like it's consistently serious here, whereas Glass Castle, I felt that Jeanette almost has humor infused there because it was all like fun and games kind of until she got older and realized what actually was going on. But this one's like pretty serious and it's like, you you think it's going to get better, but it just consistently gets worse. But the the good thing, of course, that is that she gets to go to school. So <laughs> I do recommend it, even though I guess I just said a bunch of stuff. But I mean, it's one of those things of like someone has survived a great deal, and look at where she's come. So I think there's hope at you know just looking at at Tara and where she's come. Uh, the final thing is Vanity Fair uh, by William Makepeace Thackeray, which Tom and I will be talking about soon on required reading Mm. so this was first published yes he just yeah (laughs) man that noise just told me a lot 49 or 50 at the moment okay i think there are 67 67 chapters i'm getting closer close Okay. For, and you not close enough, right? Is that what you're thinking? First published, or not soon enough, first published seriously, serially, serially, from 1847 to 848, Vanity Fair is uh, Thackeray's most famous work in which the author reflects his interest in deconstructing the notions of literary heroism of his era. This is coming from Amazon. It is the story of Becky Sharp and Amelia Sedley, who have just completed their studies at Miss Pinkerton's Academy for Young Ladies and are beginning to embark upon the world. The simple-minded nature of Amelia, who comes from a wealthy family, is contrasted with the strong-willed nature of Becky, who will stop at nothing to climb the social ranks of English society. The novel takes its name from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most famous works of Thackeray's day in which a town called Vanity is depicted to represent man's sinful attachment to worldly things set against the backdrop of the most Napoleonic Wars, which was funny because of Flay Miz that we just mm-hmm. Vanity Fair is Thackeray's classic satire of the societal trappings of Victorian England, self-described as a novel without a hero, which we'll talk about. Well, you know, I don't want to spoil mm-hmm. my feelings or anything. I will say that... I realized right at the beginning what I was getting myself into. I had different notions about what was going to happen. It wasn't as easy a read as Les Mis, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It was okay. I do recognize its place in literature, but it was not my favorite. So Which, I do apologize for recommending it. We can, we can, making you we can it. leave it at that for now because we, we, <laughs> yes, we have analysis we will. to do. We yeah. have some time. We do, yeah. Okay, well, that is it. Tom, before we sign off, can you tell people where they can find you and support you? I have three podcasts over at Two True Freaks. Um, One is In Country, 
which is my uh, issue-by-issue coverage of the Marvel Comics series The Nom, which is starting to wrap itself up. I, I got about, what, 12 and a wake-up left or something? Or yeah, So not very many episodes left. Probably will wrap up this year. I have a required reading with, well our hostess here uh and there's also a website for that that's required reading with tom and stella.com and uh my main podcast is pop culture affidavit it's everything random in the world of popular culture you can find all those podcasts at two true and you can find pop culture affidavit at pop culture affidavit.com and i'm on twitter at pop aff that's p-o-p-a-f-f Okay, well, he'll be back sometime soon, maybe in the summer. I can't remember when you're scheduled. Probably. Yeah, well, until then, yeah, well, you get a little break. Remember, (laughs) you can send any questions or comments to backworld.oracle at gmail.com. If you have any hate mail, I can forward it to Tom. You just let me know. And I'll just forward it on the chat. That'd be funny if we had this, like, sick little chain of what we didn't want to do. It eventually makes its way to, like, Alan and Mike and like somebody eventually has to pick it up and you get this message from like Don. It's like, why does this say forward, 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 (laughs) forward? Oh, that'd be one of the, remember it's just chain mail? Yes, it's just a chain mail. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher. Follow it on or follow me, I guess, on Twitter at Batgirl the Oracle and like the show on Facebook. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And be sure to support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. Thanks again to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. I think next time I'm back to some birds of prey. So until then... Fly on, Babs lovers. Yay! Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl! Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? <laughs>